or good evening once again to your listeners and welcome back to the Horror Cult Films Podcast. I'm David Smith, joined today by Mr. Ross Hughes and Jim Lamming. Say hi, guys. Hello. And also joining us today, we have a very special guest calling in from the land of Oz. Folks, to celebrate the release of the new trilogy box set from 88 Films, myself and Ross will be speaking with the director, Jamie Blanks, who made the original Urban Legend alongside Valentine and A Storm Warning. Now, this is a very exciting one for all of us since we all grew up in the 90s, so therefore we saw Urban Legend underage, the joys of older brothers. Afterwards, we'll all be reviewing the movie. Of course, that's not all we've been seeing, so let's start off with the usual question. Guys, what have you been watching lately? Let's start with you, Ross. Ah, uh, right. Uh, first up, Slacks. I think you've seen this, haven't you, David? Oh, I have. Tell everyone, tell everyone the concept, because this is a really fun concept. Did you think it was fun? Yeah, I, I generally really quite liked the movie. I thought, without giving spoilers away, because we really don't want to, the ending, I thought, was fantastic, where it reminds you of the seriousness. Because, well, this is um, like a set of killer genes. Yes, which is hard to believe. <laughs> I just found it a bit too goofy, which is probably a ridiculous thing to say when you look at what the whole concept, uh, concept of the film is about. Now, I haven't got a problem with that. I mean, if I can accept that uh, a dying murderous psychopath on taking his last breath can somehow transform his soul into a good guy doll and continue his killings, you know, and while for the next three films tries to get in his soul into a little boy and later a teenager, that, and then I can accept a pair of killing genes going on a murderous rampage. <laughs> but uh, it was a bit like Benny Loves You, which had a murderous, rejected, trials toy, you know, killing people. I think it tries too hard to be cool, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, films like Child's Play, they don't set out to become iconic slasher films. You know, before we had Bride of Chucky, the franchise was basically a straight order, which led to fans loving it more. And because of that concept, and no matter how daft it was, that's why it's grown to be in this, you know, fantastic franchise. But I feel films like Slacks, which will appeal to a lot of people, that it sets out to be this kind of horror that wants to be iconic, and when it's forced like that, it doesn't quite gel for me, if that makes sense. I think I'd agree with you on that. I mean, I think the saving grace of the movie was it was an unexpectedly good vehicle for kind of discussing sweatshop labour. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it didn't have the, the characters were unlikable. The characters were very unlikable. Mm. Oh, yeah, all, no. ex- all except for the main girl. Uh, I don't know who the actor actor was, but she was fantastic. Yes, yeah, and they weren't likable. And by the time we got to that surreal dance scene, you know, with the <laughs> pair of trousers dancing behind them, then it more or less lost me from that moment. I can understand why people liked it, but as soon as the credits were, it reminded me of that film Rubber. Was it from two thousand and ten? I don't know if you've seen that, but the killing car tire going on a rampage. Oh fuck yes! Yeah, yeah. I remember that was that was good eleven years ago. Now we're getting old. Uh, yeah, it, I had similar feelings to that. I can see why it appealed to a lot of people, and it's got a cult classic written over it, but for me, it just didn't work whatsoever. I'm sorry. But if David, if you enjoyed it, then fair play. Yeah, I think I gave it three and a half stars. I think that. Three and a half? Yeah, I think, I think I gave it that. I don't think I would st- extend it to four. Mm, I would have probably given it a two. There's a lot of bloodshed in it. I was a bit surprised. 
And uh, what else have you been watching, sir? Uh, uh, second film, Shortcut. Shot in Italy and with an old British cast. Now, this film is a bit similar to the rather excellent The Monster that came out five years ago. And it's coming on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Mm. Yeah, well, this film, well, that film had a mother and daughter trapped in their car in the middle of nowhere while a creature prowls with murderous intent. Here, we have a bunch of teenagers on a school trip encounter a fallen tree on the road, take a shortcut, and end up in the path of a creature that prowls with murderous intent. Now, if you're a young horror fan, just get into this the genre, then this will suit you perfectly. It's too zany and childish for the horror veteran, and perhaps too gory for the youngsters, but it should find its teen audience, as there's enough bloodshed and running around in dark tunnels to keep everyone entertained. For me personally, it started off well, but it soon became like an imitation of many films that have come before, most notably Alien 3. It's what I call a safe film. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a decent Sunday afternoon watch, but once the final credits roll, you will instantly forget about it. And finally, whoa, The Kid Detective. The Kid Detective? Where did this come from? I mean, the title suggests that this is something I watched on Disney+. Plus. But it's the film that came out in 2020 and was only released to rent in the UK this week. And wow, talk about an unexpected find and kudos to first-time writing director Eva Morgan who was pulled off and telling you guys a staggering achievement. How has this been missed? I got no idea whatsoever. It stars Adam Bro- Adam Brody as our Abe, who as a kid, who as a kid, had quite an entertaining life as a kid detective, who was well loved within the community, doing his local jobs, living a dream, solving small cases in his treehouse. I mean, it's something we all have to do as a child in it. Until a fifteen-year-old girl goes missing, and of course, he tries to find her, fails miserably, and his moment of fame is gone. Now, 32 years of age, it's a bitter tale of broken childhood dreams and real sadness in that this man is still living in the same way. He's lost his way, people don't take him seriously, and he probably hates himself how things have turned out. Then a woman hires him to solve the case of who murdered her fiancé. I won't say any more, guys, but this is a wonderful breath of fresh air, and it'll probably be in my top ten by the end of the year. It feels like an old-fashioned romp, Brody is absolutely sensational. It's addictive, dark, quite funny at times. I mean, I'm so glad I've seen it and I can mention it on you because this needs to find an audience and I'm sure this will become a cult classic when discovered. That sounds really, really bloody good, actually. It's it's, it's like a gumshoe detective. There's, there's a sadness. I can't, exp- I can't exp- explain what genre it was. Do you remember that film, Brick? Have you guys seen that from 2000s, from the early 2000s? I've not seen it, but I know the one you mean. Yeah, that, it's, no, it's, 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 not, it's sort of similar to that, but it's not. I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but that's the closest I think you get to that feel because Brick is a mini masterpiece. It's uh, Ryan Johnson's okay, yes, noir one, yeah. This, though, this is just absolutely amazing. And it only came out on Monday to rent, and honestly, guys, you need to seek this out. It's probably, it is, as I say, going to be my top 10 films of the year. Cool. Yeah, that, I, I, I will absolutely watch this. Maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be talking about it next time on What Have You Been Watching? Let's hope so. <laughs> and uh, Jim, what have you been watching? Quite a lot recently. Um, I feel like I've been playing catch-up with a lot of films I should have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, quite a few you know, a lot of horror fans would probably kick me to the dirt if I'd have told you I hadn't watched these already, including Suspiria, 
and the return of the living dead, the former being much better than the latter. Wait, wait, wait. Um, were these, these were first-time watches, yeah? Yeah. It's amazing, David, and it has absolutely made it. I'm getting a glass of whiskey to calm down. (laughs) (laughs) This is the original Suspiria, yeah? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it it was incredible. I mean, I'm glad I watched it when I did. I think if I'd have seen it when I was a bit younger, I'd have probably been like, what the hell is everyone on about? But, you know, watching it when I have done, I I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, really good. And Return of the Living Dead was a fun zombie film as well, but not quite in the same league, is it? So can I tell you guys something really interesting about Suspiria? When I watched it, one of the things that I, things that I, I was a bit unsure of was, how the hell does a major part of this film rest on one character not being able to tell left from right? And apparently, <laughs> apparently, the film was originally written for much younger uh, girls to be in it. Like, it's going to be young children. Now, they didn't go in that direction, but they didn't change the script either. Which is why uh, they all speak and act in a very, very kiddie manner. Wow. So <laughs> that's a bit like what we're going to talk about Urban Legend. I only found out the reason why the killer wears that parka is because the film was originally set in the winter. Mm. And they decided not to go that way, set it in the summer, but keep the parka. It makes no sense. Yeah, I still saw the cast is quite young. But, you know, what the film's like, including the one we're talking about tonight, they're probably a lot older than what they're supposed to be. Yeah, the soundtrack um, was sensational as well. Uh, yeah, incredible. I mean, that's one of the characters, really, isn't it? That and the bold use of colour in that film, it's just hypnotic. That's what's more famous for, in the colour. That's, that's what it's famous for. But um, one of the other films, that, well, two, two other films I've watched recently, uh, being the first two Slumber Party Massacre films. Oh, awesome. And, yeah, as we're discussing a slasher, uh, I thought I'd go with these two. And they were so different to a lot of other films from the time, especially the sequel. That is just off the wall. I mean, the first one is great. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it spoofs these films, but it definitely sends them up and is very self-aware, um, such as, you know, what the girls get up to at the slumber party. It basically takes the piss out of uh, horny teen films. And the way the killers just, you know, there's there's not even really any reason for them to be there. They pretty much just appear and you know, get, get on with it, especially the second one. I, I don't know how to describe part two, other than if you could remember a music video from the 80s, it's probably you trying to remember a music video from the 80s. Uh, and that's it, but just with a bit of, you know, mild blood and gore thrown in. <laughs> the killer runs around with a guitar with a drill on the end, has a few musical numbers. <laughs> do they, like, play rock? Do they play their own stuff? Are they playing rock classics or what? No, no. Well, I mean, I'm not really too down with rock and roll from the 80s, but it just seemed like generic movie rock and roll music, you know? <laughs> It did. I was dumbfounded, and I loved it. It was just the weirdest thing. <laughs> you know, this killer just appears out of nowhere from the protagonist's dreams. Basically, it, you know, it even borders on the fact it could potentially be a Nightmare on Elm Street spin-off. But yeah, just out of nowhere with his guitar drill, dressed like Elvis, has a few song and dance numbers, you know, before killing someone off. It's just absolutely weird, and I loved it. If it's your first time watch, do you think it holds up well now? 
because it's an, it's an absolute uh, classic both films you know yeah yeah i would say so i mean i've watched quite a few slashes recently the burning as well that's one um, oh the burning is fantastic mm, yeah and, i loved that one uh you enjoyed them more than the film we're going to discuss tonight oh interesting <laughs> and uh, any, any other films i saw you watch super mario brothers the movie recently <sighs> i did <laughs> and i actually enjoyed it I mean, as a Super Mario Bros. <laughs> film, it's absolutely fucking terrible. I mean, oh, God, where's that whiskey? Time, I mean, even even now, there's no parallel between those games and a film. You know, you, you, it's just, I can't, I know they're making one like CGI and so on, but even now, I, I just can't see how they're going to make a film about it. But as a 90s film with that kind of look and style to it, I actually enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's no, it's it's nothing brilliant, but I didn't dislike it, and I really liked the grungy, punky look of the Mushroom Kingdom or Dinosaur World, whichever one it was meant to be. Because I know that was just after Super Mario World had come out, and yeah, it wasn't a bad film, and it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a very good Super Mario, probably at all. I mean, if you go in there for Super Mario, just don't bother, it's it's awful. But as a night is curiosity, great. Okay, it was such a strange choice of adaptation going, all right, we're going to use this kind of Blade Runner style aesthetic, you know? <laughs> I just think for, for, for Super Mario Brothers, like, the series is absolutely fucking iconic, you know? Mushroom Kingdom, a big castle. I, like, they don't have Bowser, it's fucking Dennis Hopper with some horns, you know, rather than a great big orange dinosaur. Like, um, and, and Yoshi looked like a reject from Jurassic Park. Like, I mean, I, I can't, you know, I can't comment on it as a film in its own right, because I, last time I watched it, I simply, and I've only seen it once, I couldn't look past the uh, the lack of fidelity to the source material. Just, just because the source material, the iconography of Mario, is so ingrained, you know, uh, it's up here, I've played so many of these games, but it just seems seems such a misstep. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times if I'm watching a, you know adaptation of something, it is difficult to forget of that what it's based on. I mean, take Resident Evil, for example, I can't get past the fact that they're representing this brilliant series of games, but for some reason, this Mario films, I think it was just so out there, it, you know, it hooked me in and I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, as you say, it's such a dark, manky-looking film. It's, it's no way that's a kid's film. <laughs> I remember <laughs> watching it when I was, you know, whatever age I was back in 93, 4, so I was probably about 9 and 10. And yeah, I liked it because it was Super Mario. But just so much weird shit goes on in there. And at the end, you know, they turn a guy into a chimp and they're applauding this and, you know, not freaked out or anything by the <laughs> fact that this guy's appeared in front of them and turned someone into a chimp. But, you know, little things like that are absolutely ridiculous and it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. probably live in a, a strange world where we've got two films. We've got Super Mario Brothers and we've got Sonic the Hedgehog. Now, Sonic the Hedgehog is probably more better received and probably a better film than Super Mario Brothers. But at the same time, though, I think Super Mario Brothers would be mostly the film that everyone will remember mm. that will that will be the classic while sonic um, in a couple of years probably fade you know fade away yeah but, definitely i reckon if it wasn't the super mario brothers film there'd have been an arrow blu-ray of it by now 
<laughs> oh yeah, it'd probably be one of those kind of so uh, so bad it's good sort of things like like Hell Comes to Frogtown or something, but for a lot less sex, thankfully, thankfully than <laughs> Hell Comes to Frogtown. Bob Oskin should have won an Oscar. <laughs> you say that. Apparently, uh, he was talking to his kid about that movie. You know, his son asked him, uh, "Dad, why do you why do you appear in Mario Brothers?" And he goes. Well, you know, son, I had to buy you some shoes. You needed shoes. And he goes, but I didn't need them that badly. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else, Jim? Well, I actually reviewed the Sonic the Hedgehog film for the site. And watching it again afterwards, it doesn't hold up. And I must say I enjoyed Mario a little bit more. Um, But yeah, as I say, I've watched quite a lot as well. I've uh, seen The Love Witch, The Exorcist 3 run, the new Netflix one. Uh, oh, what do you think of Exorcist 3? I was about to ask about the same thing. It's brilliant. Um, it's a complete departure from the original, but I, I thought it was fantastic. A great detective story. I mean, which the first act just feels like two old pals shooting the ship. <laughs> wow. You know, a couple <laughs> of gruesome murders in between. But yeah, George C. Scott was brilliant in that. And, uh, you know, you've got that famous jump scare where you've that white hooded figure walks through the corridor after that nurse uh, and Brad Dorothy's always worth the money and yeah it's really good really different and very very nice um, was that your first time watch no I've, I've I've got it on DVD and I've seen right. it I think I've watched it when it first came on TV actually I've got um, vague memory of sitting in the kitchen when we had a TV in the uh, mid 90s so it must have roughly been around its TV premiere. And I was hooked. Um, yeah, I've, I've been a fan of it ever since. Um, I've only ever seen the TV version, though. I've not seen the Legion cut, which is meant to be better. So I'm looking forward to catching that eventually. Do you know the strange thing about it? I mean, Exodus 3 is not known as a blockbusting film, you know. But I don't know. I haven't met anyone who doesn't like it. Anyone mm-hmm. who's seen Exodus 3 loves it, you know, loves the film. I, there's some who actually prefer it to the, to the original, which is hard to believe. But I've seen that. I think John and outside actually prefers Exodus Two to Exodus One and Three. I think the thing is, it's partially, um, and it shouldn't be, but I think it's partially discredited because the second one was so shit. So I think you know you've got this sort of thing of well, one and three are good, but the idea of sequels has already been undermined by having a bad sequel yeah. come first, and there's yeah. not enough continuity between all of them for you to overlook that. Like the third one's almost a standalone movie, right? So yeah. Uh, then, of course, and you've got The Exorcist, The Beginning, and uh, what was the other version of The Exorcist, The Beginning? Le- Dominion. Dominion, wasn't it? Oh, Dominion. <laughs> Dominion or Legion. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it ends oh. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've got them on DVD as well, but I've bothered watching them yet. Cause I, yeah. I did not like those films at all. I didn't like the, the cinema release of Exorcist 4, and then, of course, we had like the Saxon Ida version, which they released the director's cut, which is supposed to be a much better film, but it weren't. They made the actual concept worse. I think the closest we actually got to a proper Exorcist or the recent years was the TV show, which I've said to you guys before, I can't speak highly of it. It's up there with Bates Mattel as probably one of the best horror adaptions in recent years. I never went to Exorcist, I just checked, it was Dominion. When Dominion was Dominion. coming out, and the marketing at the time was like, ooh, 
we're finally seeing Dominion, the film that was so scary, they had to make a second movie instead yeah. when they released the beginning, and you're like, watch them going, no, they just didn't release this film because it's really, really boring. <laughs> oh, it was deadly, it was, it was deadly, it was bland, it was, uh, it was awful, awful film, which I'll never, ever watch again. So, folks, on things I watched recently, I'm only going to mention two. One of them I'm going to mention passing because it wasn't a horror, which is the Japanese anime Your Name. So on Netflix right now, and it's really, really good. A beautiful example of uh, of how a soundtrack can make a film. Now onto one uh, it's horror. I watched Run, which you just mentioned. Now with Run, I thought there was a really good concept here. It's by the people who made Searching, and if uh, Searching is all about a father doing anything to get his kid back safely, Run was all about a mother trying to prevent her kid from leaving the house and smothering her. Now, there were some really good performances here. I thought Sarah Paulson is fantastic in her role. She was, played a really good villain. And uh, Kira Allen, it's her feature uh, debut, and she was so, so natural. Like, she played a believable teenager. There was also a very positive portrayal of a character with uh, multiple disabilities as well. So I thought that was really good, that, that this wasn't like, you know, her wheelchair wasn't something to be overcome or anything like that by the narrative. However, while there were some good thriller moments, and it was still relatively enjoyable, there's a change in the end of the second act that I really didn't like. I thought it completely undermined the selling point of the film and totally undermined the reason the premise was exciting. You know, it's uh, without going to spoil the territory. It's like, I guess it'd be like the equivalent of if someone, um, it's maybe too grand to compare this, but say you're watching Jaws and then a character goes, hey, that's not a shark, it's a model, right? You know, it's that kind of equivalent of what's the reason people are watching this and how do you make that really unenjoyable for people? So, uh, yeah, I uh, I checked out the film about two-thirds of the way through. I didn't mind it myself. Like, it is a bit clunky when you get to that point, but it didn't ruin the momentum for me, and I thought it had a nice finish to it as well. And, um, yeah, as you say, the performances are fantastic, and it's a great little film. It's very, very tight. didn't outstay its welcome, and I had a fun time with it. You know, I maybe could have forgiven it, because clunky is a good word. I maybe could have forgiven it, if the reveals hadn't hinged upon if one character leaving another character in a room with all the evidence, <laughs> like, you're like yeah. that's the one place you don't leave them, right? You know, you or or at least you you move the evidence, right? But you don't leave them beside the evidence and then shrug and go, oh well. I mean, you could make excuses for the whys and wherefores of that, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and actually, one other thing I watched, I rewatched Valentine. Uh, for, of course, the uh, interview with uh, Jamie Blanks. And you know what? With Valentine, I thought it was really, really good fun. It's a shameless kind of slasher film. You know, it's not doing anything that you haven't seen before, although there's quite a good kind of incel energy about the killer, so it's <laughs> decades before before its time. But, um, yeah, as a, as a sort of big, dumb slasher, it was a lot of fun. And... Uh, 
the performances were all quite good, save for David Boreanaz, because that dad joke about him being no angel still brings a groan 20 years afterwards. What about you, what about you, uh, you guys? You got any strong opinions on Valentine? I think Valentine is, has got one of the, probably out of all the, one of the, out of all the 90s slashes, which is, no, this is early noughties, when it, it's got a very good strong opening, opening kill. Absolutely, you know, that was absolutely fantastic, and you know, the way the the, the bodies and all that, and he started breathing. I thought, yeah, this is going somewhere. It sadly didn't go, it didn't keep up with that quality. Uh, there's some very dumb moments. I mean, Denise Richards to go in and take in a jacuzzi when there's a killer, you know, lurking all on her own, you know, brings groans and thinking, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> but I've got to say, I love the mask design. I thought the mask was absolutely fantastic. You know, that, I, it's for some reason, it's always stuck with me. And as you quite rightly said, David, it's, uh, it's a typical Naughty's slasher, dumb, quite fun. Not as fun as Urban Legend. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Some, something that amused me about it is uh, it was good that it had strong women in it, but every guy in the film was just a fucking creep. Like, you know, you've got the, the neighbour who only speaks in rhymes going, it's fate, Kate. <laughs> like this, you know. You've got the cop who tries to, who tries to come on to her. Uh, you know, you've got uh, the artist as well who's just a sleazy cunt. You know, it's just, it was such a, yeah. It was, it was just such a sort of a binary, you know, where um, and the only guys in it who you think are okay is later revealed aren't. But I will stop there before I say too much. Do you know what I love about it? Is the, and it makes me laugh. This is what I love about it, slasher films is that at the beginning, the boy gets beat up by a bunch of, a bunch of boys. And yet he grows up mm. and wants to kill all the girls for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fairness, we, we do make a false accusation about them. Yeah, um, true, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, yeah that's, uh, that, that, that bit amused me as well. Folks, before we move on to our feature presentation, there's some bits of news I want to bring up. So, news time. <laughs> The Collector Free has unfortunately been cancelled. Now, I was not expecting this film to come out. The Collector was yonks ago, you know, uh, the collection. That was a long time ago as well. You know, it kind of feels that it felt like there's not really a, uh, a market for the Collector Part Free any longer. So it's one of the big casualties. Either of you guys fans? You don't think it's, uh, I think it's a massive fan, not a massive fan base, but there's a fan base there to warrant a third film. I absolutely adore the original, considering it was originally going to be a sole prequel with the John Kramer character, but of course they changed it. I actually think the collector's probably better than nearly most of the source sequels. The tension and everything that the Josh Stewart character, you know, the position he's in. I love the scene where he actually escapes the house and looks back and sees a little girl in the window and he's got to make that moral choice to go back and save her. I just think it's a fantastic film. The second one, mm-hmm. the quality was a bit was a bit low. It's a typical sequel. They went bigger and, you know, bigger and more bloodier. That opening kill. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, there's more kills than that than any Scream franchise, I think. And I'm so looking forward to the third film. And, you know, I was shocked when they announced they were going to make it. Marcus Dunstan would return in, you know, to direct the film, which was good news. I was just bitterly disappointed when this news filtered through on Monday. I agree with you that there, sh- that there could easily be a third one. You know, I agree for space for it. 
I mean, fuck you. We've had uh, we've had like ten children of the corn films. I could easily do an upper collector film, but it's because it's nine years after the most recent one. I thought it doesn't seem like a a revival that I think is going to actually come out. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, if it does in future, I I would happily watch it. We waited ten years for new Jason films, so. <laughs> Uh, next up, the Chucky TV series. We've announced some new cast members. Alex Vincent is going to be coming back to it, so he was playing the part of uh, of Andy. And uh, Christine Ellis McCarthy, who played Kyle in part two, she's coming back to back for it as well. So basically, we're getting the original kids, and they are now adults. With the Chucky TV series. I do quite welcome it. I uh, I think I think the fact that it's got the original cast makes it seem cool. And I like that Don Mancini is still attached to the franchise, right? This suggests that we are getting uh, one vision that's continuous throughout the whole piece. And I think uh, with Child's Play, we've also had two decent films in a row. But i got to be honest, I am more enthusiastic about the idea of a sequel to the remake than I am the TV show. Because oh. I absolutely loved that remake. It's <laughs> such an unexpectedly good film. And the way that it builds up to this sort of high-tech bit with all the dolls coming out and all the uh, vehicles taking control of themselves and so on, it made me think that it was coming towards a sequel that the filmmakers really wanted to make and this was their proof of concept for way into it. So, you know, I would gladly watch another Child's Play uh, remake film. I totally, totally disagree. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing I love so much about the Child's Play franchise, if you look back in the 80s, and I'm, I'm talking about the old, the icons from Freddy to Michael to Jason, Chucky's the only boogeyman left who's still got running on his original timeline. Mm. And, and the fact that he's still, you know, Andy and Kyle actually showed up in The Curse of Chucky. Now, my my main concern about this TV show, which absolutely sounds epic. I mean, it actually does. I mean, we've got eight or nine episodes of this, but I don't know where, what kind of tone it's going to be. I mean, before we went to Bride, obviously it was straight horror, you know, but Bride then went more jokey, you know, meta humour. C then took it a bit too far, and it's the one film which I still can't enjoy to this day. I love the fact that uh, Curse brought it back to the original so we had the original Chucky you know running amok and I thought Curse of Chucky was absolutely fantastic but then Cult then was a bit too ambitious for me so I I don't know how this TV show you know what kind of tone is he going to do straight horror or is he going to go back to humour so that's going to be interesting to see what happens and what develops but as for the remake David I, I, I we've had this conversation many times you know away from the podcast I, I yeah it's a decent film they could have made that a film and not called it Child's Play you know, I stand by that. That could be a future episode of a head-to-head OG versus, versus remake. Uh, for now, let's go to our feature presentation, where we spoke with Jamie Blanks about urban legend. Last week, we discussed folklore. Today, we get more specific. This is what we call an urban legend. Contemporary folklore passed on as a true story. Something you might have heard about seeing Pop Rocks and soda. Supposedly, your stomach and your intestines burst. Voila, still alive. Mr. Ross, please. He's gonna explode! Somebody call 911! <laughs> so you 
are the legends we've all heard. Gang members drive around at night with their headlights off. And when someone goes to flash in their hymens to warn them, they kill them. The stories we've all told. A guy and a girl, and they're parked out in the woods. Yeah, the guy steps out, and the girl starts to hear these scratching noises. It's her dead boyfriend hung from a tree. The tales we've all listened to. <laughs> Isn't there another story about a guy with an axe hiding in a woman's back seat? My mom still checks the back seat before getting into a car. But just because it never happened doesn't mean it never will. Hello, Jimmy. Thank you very much for coming on Horacle Films Podcast. You're very welcome. It's nice to meet both of you guys. Cheers. So, 23 years later, how's it been revisiting Urban Legend for the upcoming box set? Oh, it was fun. Well, we actually, um, a couple of years back in 20, what was it? It's, uh, 2018, we went back to the States to do uh, a documentary for the Screen Factory edition, which, and that documentary is going to be included on the 88 uh, box set. And um, they'd actually asked me if I put together some extras for the, for the Blu-ray. And I said, well, let me see who's available and um, it was quite astonishing that everybody except Jared, who we couldn't track down, and Josh, who was out of the country, uh, the whole cast and crew, including the head of the studio, were, um, were, all, were all really willing to speak about the film and had really nice things to say about the experience of making the movie together. So that was quite um, uh, it was quite lovely, actually, to go back and see everyone again and, um, and reflect on the making of the film. It's a two-and-a-half-hour documentary that I believe you've made out of this. It sounds very authoritative. It's very comprehensive, yes. <laughs> Urban Legend already existed as a script when you signed up, didn't it? Yeah, they sent me the screenplay. Um, uh, it was, I think, Silvio's, maybe his second or third, second or third draft of the script, um, which was sent to me, and I, and I immediately responded to it. It's actually one of those things. I'd read the script for Scream. I'd read the script for I Know What You Did Last Summer. And I just thought Urban Legend was very, very clever. Um, it, it was something that seemed so obvious. I, I actually, I think the first thing I said to the uh, studio was, why hasn't anyone ever thought of doing this before? It's such a great premise for a slasher film. Mm. And, um, you know, unlike Scream using um, horror movies as kind of the, the, the organizing principle behind it, it was really clever to use modern folklore. And uh, Urban Legends, I just thought it was a really clever concept of Silvio's. I remember many years ago that you were linked to direct I Know We Did Last Summer, and to convince the studio you actually shot a trailer for the film with a bunch of friends. Is that an urban legend, or is it, or was it true because it's ingenious? Uh, I, wasn't, I was never attached to direct that movie. I wanted to direct that movie. That's why I, that's why I made the trailer. I, I, had, um, uh, I was up for the job for directing Scream at one point because the Weinsteins had seen my student film, wow. uh, and obviously when Wes Craven... Uh, became part of that thing. He, he deservedly um, got that job. And when uh, the next script by Kevin Williamson that came along uh, to me through my manager um, arrived, I really wanted a chance to have a crack at directing that. And I thought the only way I'm going to have a shot at, um, at this thing is to convince the producers that I, kept, that I could direct it and um, that I had a vision for how to, to make it. And I was just unsure how to go about convincing them and I had about 10 minutes of 35 millimeter film stock that I could get my hands on, all short ends that were sitting in the fridge in the company that I worked. And I thought, maybe I'll just go and shoot a scene out of the script. And then the more I thought about that, I thought, that's a really bad idea. That's just going to show uh, how limited my resources are. 
I thought I'm much better off trying to give a bigger impression of what's the best way to make a bang for the buck. And then I just went through this. I was an editor at the time. I went through the script and just highlighted all the um, the moments from the script that I thought if I if I was editing the trailer for this movie, these would be the shots that would make the trailer. And then I just went out and shot those, you know, just to, just really just to kind of give a, a sense that we shot more than we shot. That there, that there was a bigger film that existed, and we, and we just cutting those uh, those shots down from that bigger movie. But in reality. Um, I could only afford to do one or two takes of anything. So um, we had to be very, very careful how I used that 10 minutes of film. Um, but, yeah, it was it was the, the best $4,000 I did. <laughs> <laughs> we recently did a special podcast about the recent Clapboard Jungle film, An Emotional Journey of a Filmmaker, and how hard it is to get your vision out there. I'm guessing you found it just as difficult starting your journey as a filmmaker in what is basically an excuse the slasher pen, a cutthroat business. Uh, well, you know what? It's actually Hollywood's got a bit of a reputation like that, but um, I found it much harder to get a job directing a television commercial in Melbourne, Australia, right. than I found it to, to take a meeting at Paramount Pictures or Sony Pictures once it's in America. The Americans are really great at spotting uh, emerging talent, and they're they're very they're very supportive of. Um, and at least in my case, I, I found I had a lot of support from people. I would just send my trailer out to people and. And the um, I was stunned at the response. Robert Rodriguez went and 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 took me out for beers, and Deborah Hill took me under her wing wow. after she saw my trailer, and Wes Craven took me out to dinner. And I mean, I had enormous support from people that I approached over there. Nothing like that exists in Australia. So um, you know, for all the reputation Hollywood's got for being cutthroat and all those things, my experience of it was was incredibly nurturing, supportive place, um, especially as a young twenty-five-year-old kid who only made a trailer and a short film. Like I, I couldn't believe my luck. And I just think um, being polite and passionate and, um, and uh, you know, and, and, and eager and keen goes a long way with people when they're, um, when they're looking to help somebody, I think they, they can tell if someone's got genuine passion for something, um, Americans are good at spotting and nurturing that. To be a young 20-year-old to meet people like Deborah Hill and Wes Craven must have been such a, an amazing experience for yourself. Mm. Uh, it was extraordinary. I, I'd, um, I'd grown up obsessed with movies. Like I was very young when I saw The Fog. I, I saw it on 16mm at a at a local surf club a movie night one night when I was very young and it terrified me. And then by total chance, a couple of weeks later or maybe a month later or something, I saw Halloween on television and was um, immediately recognised Jamie Lee Curtis, Deborah Hill's uh, names um, and Carpenter's name and um, – and uh, and that film terrified me as well. So I um I'd I'd sought these people out like later on when I when I was uh, I'd gone through film school. I um I sent my film out to all these people, and then I, when I had a manager, I asked, I, I asked him, is it possible you could try and maybe call some of these people and see if they'd be interested in taking a meeting with me? And um and you know these 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 people did. They were they were wonderful and um. I was I was somewhat in awe of, of I remember the first time I was driving out to see Deborah Hill. I was very very nervous, but she couldn't have been sweeter, couldn't have been kinder, and um, and yeah, it was it was really quite extraordinary. I um, I certainly was um, very grateful and um, and very appreciative of the time that the, those people gave me, and um, you know to have her turn up at the the, the premiere of um of of the movie was was extraordinary. It really was um, one of the, the 
proudest moments of my life. I assume it was really nerve-wracking being that young and then your feature debut is a relatively yeah. big budget slasher film with a with a hell of a cast as well. Yeah, well, we um, uh, Jared Leto was, was the one actor that kind of came uh, with the project. The studio was very keen to work with Jared. I wasn't actually that aware of who Jared was or what his work was. Um, but once I met with him, I was, I was very, very glad to have him in the film. He's a hell of an actor. And then the rest of the cast, um, I was able to, 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 to select, select all of those. My casting director put together an amazing list of people that came through to read for roles in that movie. A lot of faces I'd never seen before and a lot, a lot of faces that I knew really, really well. And um, really, we, we, we could have cast that movie um, with completely different casts and, and still had an amazing uh, um, you know, sort of quality of caliber of actor that was in the film. So I, it was really quite mind-blowing to me to have you know, <laughs> to get to work with these people. I mean, just even having them come in to audition for me was, was just extraordinary. And um, I was just so grateful to all of them for taking the time to do that. And, and really, I wish there were, there were so many more roles because there were so, so many more actors I would have loved to have had in that film. But we just we cut, we cast some really great people, um, people like Michael Rosenbaum. I'd never seen him before, but he came in and claimed that role in the audition process. Really extraordinary actor. And um, Danielle Harris, I obviously knew really well from Halloween. I was very keen to get her in there. It was really fun. Brad Dourif was the first person that popped into my head when I read the script to play that role and to get him was extraordinary. And then Robin England, you know, I'm playing the, the – he came into audition. I said, Robin, you don't have to read for me. <laughs> you got the role. <laughs> so um, with the subject matter of it being urban legends, what sort of urban legends did, did you grow up with? Oh, I knew. I heard, I'd heard all of them. Obviously the ones that had been turned into movies, like the, the John Sayles script, um, Lewis Teague's movie Alligator was a famous one, The Alligators in the Sewers, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. I'd heard the killer in the back seat. I'd heard the dog in the microwave, the pop rocks and, and the soda. Uh, so yeah, it was it was. Um, they were all very familiar to me. Something I like about the film is the pitch black sense of humour, which gave it an edge. Could you tell me about the importance of comedy for something like this? I think uh, comedy and horror go together very, very yeah. well. I, th- I think you need to to get an audience ramped up and to get them terrified. You need to give them a release um, from from that tension. Otherwise, yeah, you just become so grim and bleak something like seven has very very little humor in yeah. it and um while it's a great film not exactly a popcorn movie you want to take a date to necessarily so i i, I always find it's fun to to have a bit we had a bit, bit of fun with some meta humor where we would have josh jackson's theme song come on the radio or we'd have uh, references to rebecca gayhart being in love seeing the girl and then you know other, other times uh, it was quite funny. Like, uh, well, I, th- I think things like this are funny where, where Alicia, you know, is basically responsible for hanging Damon by starting the car. <laughs> There's just some really dark moments in the movie where it's, um, uh, it's kind of fun to play with those things. And I think, you know, audiences, particularly the audience that we were aiming at, um, appreciated those kind of jokes. Yeah, I remember I was watching it at a late night screening. It was one of those sort of scream the craft urban legend nights. And everyone loved urban legend. Like, mm. it was a good sort of, Laugh along part of like you know the turnaround of the beginning and uh, and and like the sort of like oh fuck with the dog in the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Silvio built that stuff into the script. The um the, the Bonnie Tyler song was in the screenplay, so um yeah we we took great delight in trying to find little ways to to mix the comedy and the horror 
to make sure that the comedy didn't ever detract from the scares, but also, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to make such a bleak, scary movie that it wasn't, wasn't going to be a good time. I, I wanted Urban Legend to be a fun time at the movie. Yeah, it absolutely was. I mean, something I saw at the time was that in the review, Roger Ebert was saying about Urban Legend that it wasn't art, was his phrase, which I thought was kind of doing a uh, something of a disservice to the kind of craftsmanship that comes into doing these sorts of good scares and, uh, you know, goes into the pacing and that sort of thing. Ah. Uh, Look, a, a comment a comment that could only be born out of pure ignorance. <laughs> you know, you know, my old man used to say, "No one's ever erected the statue to a cricket," and um, I'm I, I'm I'm much more interested in people who create uh, movies than those who want to uh, just criticise them. But I think that sort of snobbery is relatively common. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 famous. I mean, Australia is famous too for being very snobbish about genre movies even though some of our greatest film practitioners have come out of that world and like I said I think it's just born out of pure ignorance I was, I was talking once to Jeff Lieberman about uh, he's the director of Squirm and Blue Sunshine a wonderful filmmaker just before dawn and we were talking about the year that Little Miss Sunshine was playing at the Oscars and Star Trek was also had been released that year he's like give the director of Star Trek the script from Little Miss Sunshine and he can knock it out of the park Give the Star Trek script to Little Miss Sunshine's director and see how well. Genre it might look look easy, but it's there's a hell of a lot to it, and to do it properly, uh, it's not. It, if, if if making commercially successful movies was was easy, people would be doing it all the time. It's 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 not easy, and it's it's a, it's a delicate balancing act. And getting an audience to laugh or getting them to you know jump out of their seat, it's um. Yeah, there's a bit of a science to it, you know. It's um, it's not it's not just um, loud noises and everything else. You've got to you've got to earn those moments and and um, yeah, there's a bit of art. There's a lot of artistry in any movie, and um, I, I think anyone who who dismisses genre as being uh, not art, I, I think they're um, uh, they, they don't quite know what they're talking about, in my opinion. Because we were talking about this on the most recent podcast. Uh, um over here, the newspaper The Guardian, I remember doing an article about a movie Get Out, where they said that invented a new genre of elevated horror. You know, as if we've got to qualify uh, liking a film that falls within the genre. Yeah. It's same with Silence of the Lambs. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the psychological thriller that Silence of the Lambs becomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's, a, it's Silence of the Lambs, make no mistake, that is the horror movie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always find it's funny. It, it, the, um, it, it, it's almost like, yeah, exactly. To, to admit that I enjoyed this movie has to say, well, it's elevated horror because I don't like horror. <laughs> I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm way above that. You know? uh, I always find it's hilarious. <laughs> well, J- Jamie, you clearly have a love for horror. I mean, we get shades of John Carpenter in Urban Legend and Valentine. I even felt a hint of an eerie tone of David Cronenberg in your very underrated Long Weekend remake. With these kind of directors, your inspiration into horror? Uh, well, John Car- John Carpenter was the, the reason I became a filmmaker and a, and a composer. I, I saw his, uh, like I said, The Fog and Halloween were the first two films I saw, um, and and that and that's what got the, 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 the film bug bit straight away. And um, there's a character in my student movie named Cronenberg. Uh, I mean, these guys are you know. Uh, they loom large in my life. I think about their films every day. I have every one of them on my shelf. I have multiple editions of these movies. But I'm um, just saying, I'm a fan, fan of those filmmakers would be something of an understatement. 
It's great two the for those two horror films, The Fog and Halloween, is a great starting point though for someone so young to get into horror because they they're classics and they both of them are. They really are, yeah. I'm afraid that the parka was originally because it's going to be set in the winter time, right? Yeah, it was going to be set, set, set during the snow. Uh, it wasn't going to be practical for us to shoot uh, at snow because by the time we were ready to shoot, um, the snow had all melted in Toronto. So we opted for a, a rainstorm instead. The thinking behind that outfit was that we wanted something that would be common enough that uh, more than one character would have one. Mm. And generic enough that um, it, you know it's plausible that you, you you could find them on campus. So um, Sylvia and I spent a lot of time thinking about those. It also had to hide the identity of the killer, and in this case, it had to hide the identity of, of a female killer. So um, that Parker solved a lot of those problems. So it, it, it was a matter of function as much as it was an aesthetic uh, decision. You know, we're doing full spoilers uh, for the review. I assume that the identity of the killer as well would, would have been quite a cool point of this, you know, saying, all right, well, you know, the audience would probably naturally assume it's a guy who's doing the murders. And I think having the best friend doing it and having the best friend as a woman, I think, gives the film a really good edge because it kind of it kind of takes, yeah, it takes women beyond being the victims of killers and saying, all right, no, one of them's a killer in this film. Yeah, well, something I've always tried to do very much in my movies is... is, um, is is put women in, in, in a, in, and it's not necessarily at the time uh, it wasn't that fashionable to do this. But like I look at a film like Valentine, I was really proud of that movie at the time because it was about women and it was you know pretty much solely about women and the, and the problems women face in the, the dating scene and everything else. And um, it's it, it's aged very nicely, uh, Valentine. It's, uh, it fits into the modern era quite well. And and it was kind of an unconventional thing to do in Urban Legend to have uh, the, the killer be a woman as well. So. Yeah, no, I was always very proud of those things, and, I'm, and I and I think those elements quite hold up quite nicely, and, and it gives the film a point of difference um, from the other films of its era. I completely agree with you about on Valentine. I was watching that uh, last week, and I'd forgotten like the kind of the incel energy that goes into the killer in that. I thought the film was really, I'd say, very far ahead of its time in terms of in terms of the sort of questions it was raising in a horror film. We were calling out um, toxic masculinity in that movie in all the shapes and forms that it takes. All the, uh, you know, all, all the things that women have to navigate in the straight white male dating scene. And um, interesting that that film was written by a woman and a, and a gay man. Uh, and it was very much something that I wanted to tackle as well. Uh, it's just um, all those different forms that toxic masculinity can take. And um, and how dr- truly dreadful some of these men um, are for the brand overall. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because that's something about Valentine, and also about Urban Legend that I noticed is while these are slasher films, uh, you, you seem to really like your quite big kills. Like there's no like, there's no there's no bog standard knife through the, knife through the back kind of kills in these films. They're always they're always uh, huge. You know, for you, like have you got a favorite kill you've done? I like big set pieces. And um, uh, yeah, if you look at my movie Storm Warning, it's the same thing. They're they're all quite um, <laughs> they're over the top. They're not exactly you know like little subtle things. They they all require a great deal of planning. Kills in my movie. They're not exactly like you know just the spur of the moment things. There's a there's a bit of premeditation going on um do i have a favorite i don't know that i have a favorite one maybe, maybe there's there's a couple in storm warning that i think are probably um some of the most elaborate ones that i've done but um 
But no, I, I, I've, uh, I've got some favourite sequences in Urban Legion. I'm very fond of the opening sequence. I'm very fond of the scene in the radio station. I'm very fond of uh, Rebecca's turn at the end of the movie. But I also, you know, I think we did a great job with the Joshua scene and uh, that went a lot of planning and, and care went into that. It was very carefully storyboarded and uh, executed by my DP. He did a beautiful job with that, with, with that movie. Same with Rick Boder on Valentine, another stunning uh, cameraman. Um, he did a, just a stunning job for me. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have a favourite kill. Um, they're all they're like your children. How can you pick your favourite? I say my my favourite of your kills was the uh, the opening kill in Valentine. Was, I'd forgotten how yeah. tense that sequence was, which is the body bags. I was watching it like, oh shit, you know, I started feeling on edge, which doesn't really yeah. come with slasher films very often for me. It it's pretty nasty. Um, that that unfortunately the kill itself was was truncated. Uh, there were a lot of the, a lot of the violence in Valentine was trimmed quite famously by the studio, not by the MPAA, uh, because of the Columbine um, situation. So there is on um, the Screen Factory Blu-ray, there's some VHS kind of quality um, shots where you can actually see the the uncut kills there. But um, unfortunately, they were never finished on film, so they are lost to time. Uh, sadly, a lot of that stuff. Out of curiosity, was Urban Legend so ever meant to be bloodier than it was? Because it's actually um, like you've got violent bits, but it's not. It's not a bloody film, I guess. No, I, ne- I never wanted Urban Legend to be bloody. It's, um, it was a function of of the kind of audience we were going for. It's also the studio that it was being done for. That Phoenix Pictures are, a, are known for prestige quality movies. They're not like a Blumhouse or a uh, you know a, a, a studio that specialized like a New Line that specialized in horror movies. Uh, Urban Legend was definitely an exception, not the rule for that place, and they were certainly not all about wanting to release an all-out gore fest. Plus, it didn't seem appropriate. Urban Legend was much more about the suspense and the thrills and the and the mystery rather than being a, a, a gore fest. It wasn't a Dario Argento movie. It was, um, you know, it was it was it was a teen slasher, and I and I I, I, did, I didn't think it was appropriate for, to be particularly violent. I think it would have been off-putting. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point actually, because I guess like thinking about. Um Say the nastiest bit of it's probably the dog of the microwave. I say that as someone who's had got some Westies in my life, so it's like oh, um, and uh, <laughs> at the same time, like there's almost a sort of <gasps> uh, thrill to it when you if you don't see too much, you know, or then uh, I guess it would seem a bit more because because if it's a bit of a mean spirited sense of humour that runs all the way through the film, but I guess it's like you've, there's always a line for that, right? Yeah, you want you want to want sometimes the audience's imagination. I mean, often it's more powerful than. Um, you know, what you can show on screen. So I think if you imply things, often uh, you have greater impact because people imagine that they've seen something much um, more graphic than they have. And you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre Halloween, there's very, very little graphic violence depicted in either of those movies. But, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people thought they'd seen something really shocking. Um, I guess that goes back to what Hitchcock did, didn't he, in Psycho? Yeah. You know, he can imply something and still have a very, very powerful... Uh, sequence without needing to show uh, the actual bloodletting. I'm so glad you mentioned Stone Warning because that is such an underrated horror. You know, that is finding it, oh, that is you. finding a new generation of fans in each past year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been surprised on, on, on Twitter. It's been nice to hear on Twitter. There's there's a lot of people who've uh, seen that movie over the years, and I always get um, nice feedback on that film. It makes me very proud because we we made that on a very limited schedule. And there was a there was not there's 900 digital shots in in Storm Warning that, that you can really tell, but there's 900 shots that have been digitally augmented, rain effects and other trickery, um, and it, it's virtually invisible. I mean, I know that they're there, but 
but nobody that watches the movie ever says to me, oh, the, um, the CGI was really good in that film. It's really good because you don't know it's CGI. So I'm really proud of that aspect for it, uh, of it. And uh, it was the first film that I got to write the score to. And um, that was a really satisfying and rewarding experience for me to be able to finally add that layer, um, uh, an extra layer, creative layer to a film. And um, I'm really proud of the performances in Storm yeah. Morning. It, it's a really beautifully shot movie. And, um, you know, I got to work with one of my um, my heroes, uh, Everett DeRoche, who wrote so many Australian uh, genre films, classic Australian genre films in the 70s and 80s. So to get to do two films with him was a real treat. It gets labelled a slasher film, but I classify it as more like a 70s revenge film. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a 70s revenge survival film. It's um, it's got more uh, in line with uh, Straw Dogs than it does. Exactly, that, that's the impression I had when I first watched it, and I was I was really blown away. So I think it's a fantastic film and a wonderful achievement. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really pleased you guys um, enjoyed Stormwind. Uh, and you said that was the first time you'd done a, a score for one of your feature films. Because uh, music's always been a big part of your life, right? It really has. Um, I, I, I I'm self-taught on the piano, and it's funny that the first two. Um, things I learned to play on the piano were um, was um, John Carpenter's music to the Fog and Halloween. Unsurprisingly, <laughs> I was a little bit obsessed with those films. So, um, and it was, it was I, I always thought it was wonderful that the director could also um, have, have that kind of level of creative expression on his movies. And I, I always enjoyed um, his music. Um, it's minimal, but but so memorable and. Um, you know, he's a hugely influential um, filmmaker, but I also think his music over the years has become more and more influential. You hear so many um, scores now, uh, you know, harken back to those Carpenter Howard um, scores. They're, they're, they're hugely influential in even, even you know, like um, uh, electronic music and stuff as well. So um, he was a bit of a pioneer on several fronts, Mr. Carpenter. He, um, he's a very, very talented man that I admire very much. And how was it scoring your first uh, your first film? So I remember uh, when I was watching Valentine, um, the score of that really really stuck out to me. So it was like so obviously you've worked with other composers, and so when it came to doing your own score for Storm Morning, like uh, like how like what was that, what's that like? Sort of looking at your own sequences and then compiling a, a sound for them. I really enjoyed that. I was actually planning on scoring Valentine, but um, just the post production schedule I didn't make it possible. And my editor, Steve Merkovich, had worked with John Carpenter on Prince of Darkness and Big Trouble in Little China. And he said, look, Jamie, if you go off and become the composer on this movie, we're going to gain a composer and we're going to lose the director. So mm. he actually had a, he had a good point on that one. I thought, I'll wait till uh, I have a post schedule that allows for me to do it. So Storm Morning allowed that to happen. Like I said, there's 900 or so digital effects shots yeah. for Storm Morning, which took a long time uh, to accomplish. That uh, was really done by one guy. So that that happened over the course. Of, it, it took probably about six months or more to do the visual effects for Storm Warning. So I had a lot of time to work on the edit, but also a lot of time to work on the score. So I actually scored Storm Warning from beginning to end about three times before I finally settled on the score that's in the movie. And I um I experimented with lots of different sounds. I experimented with with um different kind of styles of different ways of approaching the score and it ended up settling on that uh the score that you hear um, sort of minimalist approach where i used um synthesized elements but also lots of sample 
strings and strange sounds and uh, and an ethnic flute that I had the example by a friend of mine that I was able to play on the keyboard and, and just use that as a sort of signature sound throughout the film. So I, I really enjoyed the experience and it was um, it was something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. I've been writing music for commercials and short films, documentaries and things, but that was the first time I'd actually got to write a full score to one of my films. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it so much. I, I, I can plan to continue doing that in my future projects. When you're uh, shooting a film but you know you're going to be scoring, like, did you have a kind of a soundscape in your head based upon the script? Yes. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have sound um, in my head as I'm reading the script. I have sound, uh, as, even when I'm, when I'm making the film, I get back at the end of a shoot day and just sort of sit down by the keyboard and start figuring things out. And then um, sometimes I just we, we watch rushes on long weekend and I, and I would just have the keyboards in the same room and I would just sort of play along at the rushes just to try and get a sense of um, what the score should be like. So um, yeah, I'm always I'm always thinking very musically. Even when I was working with the other composers, I had um, I was listening to a lot of Christopher Young's music during Open League and just just his different scores because I knew he was a composer. I wanted to go out. An approach. So, um, yes, I'm always thinking musically. I, I, I think sound is, you know, we, do, we, we talk about film as a, as a visual medium, but it's also an, an audio medium. It's a 50-50 experience. I mean, if you turn the sound off and watch a movie without the audio, it has far less impact than if you turn the vision off and listen to the sound mix. So, especially in genre film, sound is a hugely important component of, um, of filmmaking. And, uh, and it's even something at film school where the I was always drawn to is I would write music for all the other kids' films and, and I'd work on sound and a lot of other people's movies. Um, yeah, I was always just really fascinated by that part of it and I still am. You could classify Halloween as that kind of film with the, with the music. The music just adds to the eerie, scary tone. Same as The Fog, really. The Fog, the found soundtrack is so underrated. Yeah, I mean, Carpenter said famously many times that he screened those movies to people without the music and they just weren't scary. Mm. Um, as soon as he added the music to it, it just became a whole different version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the soundtrack did such a good job of sort of selling the uh, the atmosphere of the place, you know? Yeah, that's a music. That's a musical masterpiece. That's how they that, ever they hardly ever talk about the, the soundtrack of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but that is just some some like crazy fucking <laughs> level genius level <laughs> sound design that really is um, unsurpassed. I think. That's um, it's, it's a truly remarkable score that doesn't get enough credit. Uh, on that point about uh, about atmosphere, something I've liked about I liked about Storm Warning, Valentine, and Urban Legend is just the sort of sense of location uh, that you get out of this. You know, the, uh, the kind of the, how well you're able to conjure up these sort of dark, stormy nights. And I guess when it, with Urban Legend, uh, you used University of Toronto, I believe. Like, was for, did, you, did you have a lot of different locations that you looked at, or did that one just come just come to you quite quickly? Uh, that one was um, that was kind of obvious to shoot there because we were based in Toronto specifically for that location. Um, if if you've ever been there though, it's it's right in the middle of downtown. So the the university in Urban Legend is set out in the woods. So um, that Pendleton University is actually played by two different campuses. Oh. We use the University of Toronto predominantly, and then we flew up to Northern Canada to do some aerial shots of a different campus that you see at one point in the movie that. And they tie together pretty well. I uh, read somewhere that the Latin motto translates to "the best friend did it." That's true. Did you know of many, many, many people who uh, who had the film spoiled for them because of their uh, their ability to read Latin? 
Not really, because you don't really end up seeing the logo that often in the movie. Mm. Um, it was just something that I thought would be a cute joke. Uh, while we were designing the, um, the the insignia for the school, they had some Latin thing there, and I said, what does that read? And that was, that was some, something generic. I said, now let's put a clue in there. And I said, translate the best friend did it into Latin. And <laughs> there was, of course, an Uber Legend sequel, which is included within, within this box set. Were you approached to come back to the franchise in any stage? Yes. Oh, you was. Did you, have an, did you have an idea how to carry on the story? I did. That's, that's why I ended the movie the way that I did. I, my idea for the sequel was to say um, that the whole movie, you know, it's obviously the, at the end of the film, it's obvious that it's all been a story told by another group of people and that friend is still alive. So my idea for the sequel was to bring back the entire original cast, playing different uh, versions of themselves and tell a whole different um, uh, story set on Pendleton. Um, and uh, but using the whole original cast again, which I thought would have been a really fun, unique way to do a sequel that I've never seen done before, quite the same way. But um, they decided to go in a different direction with that. Sequel. Oh, that's a shame because that, that is a wicked idea. Mm. That is a very, very good idea. Great concept. Yeah, it would have been fun. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm yet to see either, see either of the sequels, so I look forward to seeing them when I get the next box set right. Yeah, you'll get to check them all out. Like, is that a weird experience having a sequ- having a sequel come out of the cinema to one of your films? Not really. It's it's um it, it's more of a, a function of the commercial rights that have to be exercised by the studio. That that movie made a lot of money for Phoenix Pictures. Uh, you know, I was delighted that it was a hit for them, and I was delighted they could actually make sequels um, off the film that we'd made for them. It was um I, I was really proud that it was it was successful enough to, to warrant a sequel. So I was um I was thrilled for them that they got to make another um another movie uh you know it'd be, it'd be crazy to, to to resent the fact there was a sequel made to a film it's quite an honor to have a sequel like they're doing a, even a remake to the film now so you involved in any way capacity executive producer or nothing no, at all no it's a shame no i'm not no i've got i've got i've got some other stuff i'm working on now what is the future jamie is anything to look forward to what we've got to look forward to oh yeah yeah, there, there is a, there's a couple of things that I'm very excited about at the moment that are in the works. So um, can't say anything about those projects, but um, stay uh, tuned. I'll be wanting an exclusive as well. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, one urban legend that I know shows up in the sequel, which isn't this one. That's the you know the dog one. The human humans can lick too. And I was wondering yeah. if there's uh, if there's any ur- urban legends that uh, you would have wanted to fit into the film if you could fit them into the film. Ah, uh, there was there was. There's definitely some, but I'm not going to say what they are because uh, you never know what might happen in the yeah. future. True. <laughs> 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 uh, just as one last, uh, one last question that we have here, then, is uh, as you were an influential part of the 90s mini slasher boom, we got asked the main question that everyone has. Uh, I suppose you've almost answered this already, but what's your favourite scary movie? The Fog. Oh, brilliant. Fog and Halloween, because mm. they were the first two. They were the ones that scared me the most because they were the, the yeah I was I saw them at the, at the right age. They're actually mine as well. So I'm so glad you said that. Oh yeah, excellent. Great minds think alike. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Once it's gone up, uh, I think it's actually one of the wee thing we, we were tweeting about before was I was really glad when you confirmed the uh, the he's no angel line in Valentine as being like a kind of the in joke form from it. Because I remember uh, me and my old fl- flatmate watching the film, going, uh, "All right, well, that's all, but that's you know, that's no, it's no, that's not a coincidence there." <laughs> there. But it was, but the, the thing, no. the thing, delivered so like naturally that it didn't seem as like a, 
like a dad joke. Yeah, it, it, it could have been it could have been a really bad dad joke, which, which it sort of is, but it's um, Marley, Marley delivers it just just throw away enough that it's um, that it that it makes it really really funny. Hmm. So that that was that was no accident. I um I, I had to say that. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, uh, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Groovy. Thank, thank you, you, Jamie. It was lovely speaking to you. You have a great. And you as well. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. Cheers, guys. was great fun speaking to Jamie Blanks and now let's talk about the film itself personally I really enjoyed it when I was growing up one of my mates had the urban legend poster on his wall and it always just looked a bit darker a bit scarier than Scream did and whilst it's not as good a film as Scream at the same time it does have this kind of edge to it you know there's a sort of delicious dark humour that runs through the entire thing it's so kind of gleefully mean-spirited that I think it it takes an identity of its own. Like, it has got the kind of modern teen angle of Scream, or then-modern angle. But then it's also a tribute to films like Sorority Row, The Burning, or Slaughter High. You know, where you have these kind of pranks that go wrong. You have these kind of uh, much less likeable characters doing bad things to each other. Yeah, I think going back to around 16 when I first watched it I know it was when it first was shown on Sky Movies over here um, so probably around 99 2000 it was cracking I mean didn't see too many slashes up until Screen came along and this was obviously trying to cash in on that you know you've got the postmodern self-aware slasher aspect of it and 16 year old me loved it I I can't remember how many times I watched it. Uh, every time it was on and I could, uh, I would. Um, fast forward a depressing amount of years, and it's fine. It's, <laughs> I still enjoyed it for what it was, but it just didn't have the impact that it did on me back then. I, I think this is definitely one for the, the younger slasher fan. Maybe could even be a, a gateway to the subgenre, um, but yeah, watching it, oh god, oh, fifteen years later, it was still entertaining, but nowhere near as fun as I enjoyed it as a human. Mm. Right, two things to me. First of all, David, thank you for the, the fantastic intro at the beginning by knocking fifteen years out of my off my age because I'm saying <laughs> I watched this when I was underage. But uh, <laughs> and I, I will be picking the many flaws of your legend, but that does not mean I have hatred for this film. My second favourite slash film of all time is Jason Lives, you know, the sixth century of Friday 13th, a movie in which Jason gets struck by lightning and makes him rise like a Frankenstein from the grave for no apparent reason. And that's just the first of many laughable scenes that I can think of. But I will defend Jason Lives to the hilt. And while Urban Legend is not quite up there in terms of my love for it, it still shares the same daft themes that makes me so happy to be here tonight to talk about it. Now, well, let me think back. I think I was first in the queue on opening night. I mean, we had, we had already been cheated to many slasher films before his release. And I was there in 1988 standing there with my popcorn. And I always remember the Empire magazine. Now, 
back then, there was no Facebook. There was no real interest in the internet. There was no uh, massive film websites which you can look back on. I mean, the word podcast would sound like something from the Alien franchise. And mm-hmm. most fans, especially in the UK, got their film reviews either from Empire or the legend that was Barry Norman, who sadly died, of course, and he had his BBC flagship show uh, on BBC One. And I remember picking up the Emma magazine, and I think, Jim, I think you've done this in the past, I'm new. The first thing you do is check the spine on the cover and read the quote from the film, see if you can guess it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone does that. And then you flip over to the middle section and to read the reviews. And I remember being so pissed off that they had given Herbert Lynn a small review. And they only given it one star. And I was stuck wow. with me. And I remember even the image it was of Tara Reed's character screaming as the kid looked down on her, all set to swing the axe. And I remember they also mocked Robbed England, you know, who was a horror icon. And no matter what from that moment and from reading that review, I was going to enjoy this film. Mm, one star is a bit harsh. I mean, even as an adult, I, you know, still enjoyed it a bit more than that. Well, um, yeah. I understand if you're not a huge fan of killers wearing masks, or in this case, a Parker, and no, the main ambition is to raise a massive body count, then I totally appreciate why you would have issues with what is on offer you. But, you know, watching Urban Legend way back in the 90s, I absolutely loved it. Watching it now, it gives off such a nostalgic chip for me. It's not the best slash film. It smiles down in the quality of films that was released, you know, in that period. But its flaws make it so fun. And, you know, I probably get more enjoyment re-watching this than I would with the many slasher films that get released these days. It's funny you should mention the nostalgia aspect of it. It's, you, you've got the opening, haven't you? And it's pissing it down with rain. That was like, that was washing right over me. It just took me back to when I watched it, which, thinking about it, was over 20 years ago now. <laughs> um, yeah, it just it really did have a weird kind of roasting it nostalgic aspect to it the approach of film is a black comedy as much as a slasher i think it's it's better all the kills are so extra you know it's a slasher film but there's not really any clean-cut slashing going on you know this is uh, this is people getting hung this is dogs being put in microwave <laughs> this is uh, someone getting choked to death and their family thinks they're having sex right <laughs> like, <laughs> as with valentine i think what blank shows here is that he he might be working for slasher template, but this is sort of and this goes into the premise as well. It's almost like a how done it as much as a who done it. You know, you're just waiting for something yeah. really silly to happen. And uh, for me, I thought that was brilliant. You know, like I like that we're going to a character saying, "Ah, oh, I'm gonna gonna steal your kidney by the end." The basic premise of using these kind of scary stories that people grow up on is like here's the killer's modus operandi. I thought that was amazing. It just keeps the audience kind of guessing about what's going to happen next. What are they going to riff on? And there's just something quite rewarding about how Scream was saying, all right, these are people who've watched horror films and that's a meta angle. Well, this is people who grew up with the same stories as the audience did. And that becomes a meta angle. So I just thought the whole thing was really clever. I fucking love it. (laughs) Yeah, it is a very neat premise. Uh, I do enjoy the fact that it's based on scary stories your friends would tell you on the playground, that sort of thing. Um, and again, going back to when I was younger watching it, it's part of you is like, well, could that actually really happen though? <laughs> mm. <laughs> like when it's, uh, is it the popping candy and the can of pop? I remember crapping myself watching that the first time. So, oh my God, that could actually happen. <laughs> Obviously, you know. 
<laughs> do, do you know what I love about that scene is that uh, Robert England is more scary in that film than he is as Freddy Krueger because you got a student claps in front of him foaming by the mouth and he just stands there <laughs> I loved how much that student stuck to the premise of a joke. You know, like, you're, like we're throwing themselves down the stairs. You're going, that's commitment. <laughs> I mean, it always kind of annoys me when you're watching college university lectures in, uh, in horror movies because you always have the thematically linked lecture. You always have this really interactive style where everyone's coming off with like wise guy quips. And then you've got the lecturer who's just totally okay with all this. And if anything is uh, is written to be cool, but I was okay with that here just because of uh, Robert Englund's presence. You know, I think he was so fun in that role. There was just something really good about seeing Robert Englund being the one who's kind of ushering these young people into horror. I felt like a passing of the torch moment. You've got yes. to be you've got so you've got to be honest though. And out of all the slasher films in the nineties, this has probably got the strongest cast of them all. I mean, oh, the cast yeah, yeah. the cast in this is unbelievable. I mean, you've got a, it's a massive, massive pub quiz question. Can you name the nineteen ninety eight slasher film that starred two actors who went on to be DC supervillains? You know, it's it's just amazing. You got Daniel Harris, who's now a, you know a horror icon. It's it's amazing. When I was watching it, I watched it again the other night, you know, ready for this podcast, and I was just blown away by the people who were starring in it. Wait, so Jared Leto's one. Who else is a DC villain from this? Oh, come on. Think about it. Do you know Jim? Nah. Are you serious? I'm I'm drawing a blank. The guy, Michael Rosenbaum, I can't remember his name, the guy whose dog was in the microwave. Oh, yeah. He played Lex Luthor in Smallville. Oh, well, fuck that. I mean, small, <laughs> a DC supervillain, you use Smallville. I no, was too hung over to watch Excuse me, Smallville is an iconic show. Come on. <laughs> I'm clutching straws, I'm clutching straws. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to go, you obviously haven't watched Aquaman yet. I go, no, I didn't. I watched it the Justice League and stopped. Um, yeah, it has got a very good cast. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, aside from the older people, Brad Dourif and Robert England, you know, Jared Leto... The fact the guy went on to win an Oscar, it's it's good. You know, Tara Reid became bigger bigger afterwards as well. You know, nowadays she's mostly doing her uh, Sharknado films, but you know she's got a very good screen presence throughout this. Oh yeah, I think it's one of the best things I've seen her in. I mean, she was really massive back then, wasn't she? Due to you've got uh, American Pie money, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, your teen sex comedies and all those. Um, yeah, I remember seeing her then in like a slew of crappy made-for-TV films and stuff. And, you know, back then it was quite a surprise because she was always on magazine covers and all that sort of thing, which, you know, but there you go. Um, Yeah, and Joshua Jackson, he um, would would have been a massive name Mm. back then because, well, if you've got the Dawson's Creek gag in there. Yeah, Um, in fact, he, he dies quite early in the film as well, I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I, again, re-watching it last night, I forgot how quickly he gets picked off in this one. And considering he's just come off a starring turn in The Mighty Ducks 3 as well. <laughs> You've also got the uh, the well-manicured man from The X-Files uh, plays the Dean in this. Oh, I yes. Oh, the Dean was one of my favourite characters. Just mm. so evil. He was brilliant. Like this idea of a conspiracy that's been put up in place to disguise uh, a murder taking place on campus. My favourite bit of the film, because it's the most what-the-fuck moment, is uh, when Jack Lytle's character says, I tried calling the police, 
the dean had already called the police and told him <laughs> that they'd be getting prank phone calls. It's like, wait, how the fuck is the dean able to order the police not to visit campus? He has no authority to do this. And more importantly, if someone says, by the way, if people report a murder, don't listen to them, right? You would just arrest that person. Like, I mean, he went out in a brilliant way. You know, where he gets run over by his own car, his head going straight onto a spike. Another great death. Um, when that made me smile, because it reminded me of, uh, you guys remember the band E17, the singer Brian oh, Harvey? Gosh, yeah. And uh, when Brian Harvey ran himself over, <laughs> right? uh, after apparently uh, vomiting out a window in his car because he ate too much, uh, too many baked potatoes, falls out the car <laughs> and then it just goes over his stomach. I was like, <laughs> and so. <laughs> I love seeing someone die by by that in this too. That that was such a stupid part as well. I mean, literally seconds before that happens is just parted ways. Was she a, an actual policewoman or was she just campus security? Hey, she was campus security. Uh, yeah. And he's telling but, her, he's like, don't yeah. call the police if anyone goes <laughs> missing. You're like, what? So missing kids? And he's like, yeah, we just keep this under our hats. Yeah, like, she's literally just walked off shot. And then the killer arrives. So rather than <laughs> him like asking for assistance, he just kind of, you know, all right, go on with it. <laughs> it's like the, the whole conspiracy angle just made him seem like a slightly shitter version of the character he plays in the X Files. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the dean was a jerk, so it was good that he does meet a uh, uh, comeuppance. Uh, I enjoyed that. Well, I think the first ten, the first fifteen minutes of Urban Legend actually sums up what you, what to expect from this film. You know, it's not going to be high art. You know, it's going to be the most dumbest slasher film you know you'll ever see. And I, I mean, I have the highest praise. I mean, I, David, you and I talked about it before, before, and you know, a couple of days ago, even the beginning with the eclipse of the art singing in the car. Oh, forgive it. Turn around with the killer in the back. <laughs> she's, oh, she's, sang, she's, sang, she's singing a bit than Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> but to be fair, who doesn't belt that out in the car? It did, it did make a cracking gag from Scary Movie. It did create that with the thing when Anna Fass' character singing along to a song and the song stops off in the radio and the singer says, shut the fuck up. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good gag. But what I love about that scene is she actually, for a brief moment, she glances back to the back seat and you see the parker there on the on the back. Where yeah. was the killer hiding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was really obvious when she pulls up to get fuel as well. You know, oh, Brad Dorif looks in the window, shits himself, goes inside. Uh, so she thinks he's being weird just because he's got like a stutter on it. The thing, the thing is, though, he, he was being so needlessly scary as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not judging his stutter, as anyone who listens to his podcast knows. I'm very ill-equipped to do so. But at the same time, it's so weird that he decides it would be appropriate to like, you know, lock the door and push her and stuff it's like no um, you know there must be another way of conveying this information yeah, he just knocked the window and say I'm point behind you behind you you know and he just did everything wrong and the poor bastard gets arrested for it there's no DNA there's no evidence there's no fingerprints at the back of the car but no yeah he swung that axe but what I love <laughs> but what I love is the little small things as well now most slasher films follow the same blueprint you know we get the standard introduction of the boogeyman and then it's followed by the introduction of the final girl you know Halloween we had Maya to escape and then we saw the innocent Lowy scream we had Casey answering her phone getting the who was the killer Friday 13th question wrong and then paying for by swinging from a tree in bloody fashion 
which was then switched to Neve Campbell Sydney, you know, tapping away in the computer. But Urban Legend says, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> they show the killing, and then they show an insignificant character in the shape of Tara Weed mimicking a blowjob with a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Here, did you guys think the killer looked cool or not with the Parker? I thought it was a good design, but Rossi's point about how this is originally meant to set in win- be set in winter, yeah, would have made a lot more sense. But because we insisted on having like a storm constantly in this film, I was absolutely okay for Parker. Yeah, it was it was fine. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's iconic or anything, but it did make for some amusing red herrings. Whereas everyone obviously shops at the same store for you know outdoor clothing. <laughs> it turns up in about several well several other people's cars and offices and so on. I understand the second movie they replaced the Parker with a fencing it's costume. Mask. It's the same Parker, but they just got a fencing mask on. What an absolutely bourgeois thing to add to it. Like fencing. <laughs> they probably just went out the mask, but they can't use a ski mask. <laughs> Do they kill with a sword at some point? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I recall. <laughs> If I say about the park, you see, again, and I absolutely love, that's what I love about this film, the, the, the swimming pool scene, where, you know, <laughs> she's swimming and uh, the, the, she's looking down and the killer's walking towards her, apparently. Who wears a parker to the swimming pool? Who wears <laughs> thick boots to the swimming pool and underneath she's got a swimming suit on? <laughs> I mean, a swimming suit in a park room, that just seems like someone who's got a fetish with flashing or something. Like, <laughs> she's thick boots. <laughs> <laughs> Where was she planning to go? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, to uh, have it in the uh, creepy janitor's car as well. You know, that ticks the trope box, doesn't it? So, yeah, something else I'm going to praise this film for. I really liked the atmosphere throughout like I mentioned a moment ago it's this never-ending stream of rain that's going through it but like the location they use the University of Toronto for this which I believe was used in other movies as well I think Gossip used the same location and um, what you got is like you know these kind of these old buildings and the bits where we're sitting there telling these ghost stories to each other they managed to kind of create this kind of gothic atmosphere about the whole place. When it needed to be moody, it could be moody, you know? When it needed to do things like, all right, here's a place just looked brilliant. Yeah, I remember the boarded up dormitory had a really creepy vibe to it when I first saw it. Um, obviously, you know, it's, it's somewhere that's forbidden, you can't go, so that is going to end up in the climax, isn't it? So you you knew there was something sinister going on. And again, being younger, your brain works at a million miles an hour. And you know, you, you're probably scaring yourself more than the film is <laughs> thinking about what's gonna happen. But yeah, it, it does it does have a real good, you know, sense of setting about it. And you know, you've got the uh, uh is it Joshua Jackson where he gets picked off. Uh, you you got the creepy woods there after he goes for a piss and then gets knocked out. He wouldn't name as a mannequin because that's what he said didn't he? when she's sitting there in Natalie they say you know he, he, he's not dead he must, he must have been a mannequin. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, that was ridiculous the fact that literally no one believes her <laughs> that this has happened. You know he, he was with her and then she sees him hanging from a tree. I mean just because the body's been removed doesn't mean anyone should take this seriously. <laughs> 
it's not the last time, is it? Either with a friend who gets choked out. Sorry, a roommate. Yeah, it's something for Latin model replace. It translates to the best friend did it. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Hiding in plain sight. <laughs> Sorry, my, my Latin's a bit rusty. I do apologise. <laughs> But, but going back to the, the film and all that, obviously Jamie Blanks, he, he, he knows his horror, the way he set mm. out. I mean, he just we just took the mick out of the beginning with, uh, you know, the gas station and all that. But everything in that 10-minute scene has got everything but horror. You've got the, you got the rain, you know, you've got the glowing lights, a bit like Psycho, Psycho Homage, you know, you've got the freaky, spooky gas station man. So, yeah, he played, mm. he played, he played with the cliche of horror, but I, I think he played it really well. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I think as with Valentine, you can stage a good kill sequence. One small part that frustrated me about one of the kills, you know, the, the hanging part, all done very well. But I, as well as how surprised I was that Joshua Jackson got killed so early, I was also really surprised that they revealed so early that it wasn't him doing it. You know, because that could have just been a fake out if you know that he's, if you know the whole thing's staged so he can go around stabbing people. But we know immediately that that's not happening because we see him like, what the fuck is he's being choked? Whereas if we're kind of led to believe that maybe he's staged this himself, I mean, I suppose you lose, you if you did it that way, you would lose the idea that anyone could die because they're killing someone who by this point is famous. Maybe that was a rationale, but I just thought, thought it was a missed opportunity to have the mystery because the mystery component of it I didn't call the killer first my sort of Brenda. I had no idea it was Brenda who was doing it. And I think like it was relatively well controlled. I didn't have a particular suspect since so many people act so suspiciously. But I never thought it was her at any point. Now, maybe that's because, because it's cool that you're having a woman as a killer, which we are immediately going to assume it's a guy who's doing that. So that's obviously a subversion. But at the same time... I think it's because they, whilst the Stanley Hall massacre thing didn't really add up to anything, they gave a good enough kind of red herring about it that maybe this is all part of it. Like, you know that it's not Robert Englund or anything like this. But at the same time, you, it does enter your mind, well, what if it's not someone they know? You know, what if this is just someone that did that who's come back to do more? Do you guys call the ending, actually, first time you saw it? Did, were you surprised when you found out it was Brenda? I yeah. sort of... God. When Tyler Reed's character is being chased, you know, and they think she's acting for some reason, I don't know, she's screaming live on the radio, and some man standing listening, thinking, oh, she's doing a play act. I just, <laughs> but the moment when the killer stops and does a little wave to Natalie, that was the moment for me. I was thinking, mm. yeah, I think that's Brenda. I think that was that's the moment. Like, fair play, and you know, it's it's a lot more obvious in Urban Legend too who the killer is. I mean, the killer walks around with his me on his forehead. <laughs> and the moment when, you know, the killer waves at Natalie, I was like, yeah, that's her. And the fact is, her name is Bates as well. Oh, uh, by the way, as a, as a quick heads up for anyone listening, we're not going to include spoilers for Urban Legends 2 and 3. But if you listen to the interview of Jamie Blanks, where we did talk about the ending of the film, among other things, then you can reasonably expect spoilers for this movie. But 2 and 3 will not be spoiled. Yeah, I... I... I didn't see it coming. I mean, you know, I was relatively new to the genre, I suppose, back then. And it's not really signposted at all. Even rewatching it, you just can't, you know, you wouldn't expect it to be um, who it ended up being. And I thought that was pretty good. I mean, it takes away, well, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> 
But I thought we'd be Becky Gay Art was brilliant in the role. I mean, she got those yeah. crazy zany eyes, haven't she? And mm. you know, she, she played the part really good. You know, as you said, she, she kept herself a little bit in the shadows, a tiny bit. And as you quite rightly said, I know it sounds sexist, but I, I think in the idea you wouldn't think a female character could do those kind of killings, especially swing an mm. adult. You know, like Joshua Jackson on the tree. So when she's lying on the bed at the end, then she jumps up and then she turns into psycho mode. I think that's the probably the only disappointing part I got the film that it, it weren't extended. As soon as it was revealed, the film was virtually over. Yeah, agreed. We probably would have liked a bit more. Yes. Um, I also liked that character of Natalie in it, that they gave her quite a nasty backing story. You know, because we're meant to believe that she's mm. squeaky clean for the whole thing. Like, she's the only one who isn't acting like a complete psychopath when, when it breaks out with murders on campus. You know, she wants to know who did it. Whereas the others are like... Uh, you know when Daniel Harris's character were wheeling her body out and someone's like yeah she always looks like that like it's this kind of comedic psychopathy where we just have to buy that no one really gives a shit about murder I mean Scream does the same thing actually because you know I mean with teenage lives in this you can't have people grieving it makes the movies far less enjoyable hmm. so I liked that her character who was kind of built up as perfect for going no but she's not actually she's got this dark story which resulted in someone dying yeah and they had probation for it they didn't go to prison oh we got away we had probation <laughs> you, just, yeah. you just killed someone <laughs> you know? well, what I didn't quite get is why Natalie was the one at the centre of this you know closing net of people being killed off as yeah she was in the car but she wasn't the one driving it, it was very strange why why did she not torment the other person or why not make natalie the one driving the car you know it's it's uh, uh, so i mean i could see from a writer's perspective why you would like she'd be completely unsympathetic if she'd been yes. the one driving it but i guess it's a sort of form of giving her complicity but at the same time it's not making you say well i don't give a shit what happens to her any longer i suppose you've got that angle can we go back on when you say about the mystery? You, you felt you should have had a bit more mystery, you know, to the film. By the late 90s, I think we all know the slasher genre was dead and buried, when not it? Of course, you had the unexpected success of Scream in 1996, which changed all that. Now, I don't really want to go into the impact of Goldface a lot, as we have an upcoming Scream special, which, mm-hmm. you know, which we'll be looking back on all the four films. Uh, yes, obvious, cheap bit of advertising there, wink, wink. But that was such a huge, huge hit, you know. It, that became the Halloween of the 90s, for a small period in which we had a mini boom of slasher films. And, you know, we had some really good entries, but I think, I know we did last summer, which obviously obviously came out in 1997. That was more of a straight horror. That was more of a straight horror. You know, there was a lot of mystery to that. They weren't exactly, I know we had the Fishman, they didn't actually play on like kind of like a Scooby-Doo. You yeah, know, there wasn't really a who done it to it. Yeah, mm. and I think, I think Urban Legend, I think this is why it's one of the, I think those three films are the most, you know, Scream, I know we did last summer and Urban Legend are the three of the most fun films of that era is because you had Scream, which started it all. I know we did last summer, written by Kevin Williamson, of course, was more of a straight, straight slasher mystery. And then I think Urban Legend was probably the first slasher that came out that actually copied the Scream approach. I enjoy this more than I know what he did last summer, but I do enjoy Scream more than this one. I think with Scream, the reason it's a more enjoyable film, aside from that, you know, it was... It was first, and there's something that just feels quite fresh about it. And, uh, you know, without uh, without offending Jamie Blanks, if he's listened to this, Scream also had Wes Craven on it, right? But 
uh, I think something else it had was like the characterization in the screen was a lot warmer. You know, yeah, you had your absolute psychos and that, like Billy Loomis and uh, Stu, but at the same time, you know, you had a budding relationship between Dewey and Gale throughout it. You know, you have uh, Sydney as the protagonist. I, you know, we do warm to you. I think Scream ha- and then, let's face Randy uh, in it as well. You know, you had these characters that, that we were supposed to like, whereas I think of Urban Legend, because we're trying to make everyone a suspect, and basically everyone in it's a total dick. With the exception <laughs> of uh, of Natalie as the protagonist, and it's revealed later that she, well, she has a dubious past too. I think it's, you have to be honest here. If it, it, it wouldn't have been a new bit legend if Scream wasn't a success. Yes, absolutely. So what he basically done was okay, you know, that's just sort of, and I don't mean it as disrespect because I think Urban Legend stands on his own two feet. But it must have because it was made for forty million and it grossed over seventy five million. This was a box office smash, you know, which led to a brief little franchise. Yeah, 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 I lost my telephone now. Thanks, James. Catch in. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, though, like, yeah, people people would rightfully say, well, this is a Scream clone, right? Or, you know, it was obviously inspired by Scream. And yeah, so was, I know we did last summer, so was probably Final Destination and probably the faculty as well. But at the same time, it's a standard that we don't really apply to the golden era slashers. You know, because you go, okay, well, after Halloween, you get, you get Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, we we can talk about that independent of it being like a, a riff on Halloween. We can talk about the burning independent of the fact that the burning was obviously a complete rip off of Friday the 13th. I think it's a standard that we apply to, I don't know if it's about newer movies or something, or just movies that we saw come out of the cinema, but I think there's a slightly different standard when we talk about that versus the really quite unoriginal series of horror films that we got in the 1980s. And I think that's someone who loves slasher films. You know, I imagine there will have been periods where we're just sitting there looking at a calendar and going, can we make a film about this? So you've got a Friday the 13th, you've got your Valentine's Day one, you've got Prom Night, Graduation Day, Final Exam, New Year's Evil, you've got numerous Christmas ones. But at the same time, we don't necessarily see these through the lens of being rip-offs in the same way that I think we would... And this goes for other modern ones, like, say, people talking about that's a hostile rip-off or a or saw a rip-off or something like that, you know, where people complain there's too many remakes. It always bothers me when there's a selective expectation of originality, which doesn't happen for a lot of people's favourite movies. But Jamie Blankson, even though he does, they knew what they were doing when they created it. They knew they, mm-hmm. could, they, could, they knew they could match Scream. And as you quite rightly said, I mean, I, I, I watched Halloween at such a young age. I mean, either my mother was the coolest mum around or one of my close relatives should have been phoning Childline, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I doubt I'll ever see a slasher film as perfect as a John Carpenter classic, as everyone knows on all films. It's my favourite film of all time. But yet Jason showed that Slash would be fun. Mm-hmm. You know, the Friday 13th films are just set out for poor carnage, let's be honest. There's no plot. Characters placed in Camp Crystal to be butchered by movies. And yet they are so, so joyful. It's to, to get us... I'd sort of say the same thing here, though. I mean, it's not joyful. Like, this is just a sort of... As it is, a sort of mean-spirited side of comedy. I mean, this is... Someone puts a dog in a microwave at one point. (laughs) And it's probably... Like, I think it's supposed to be like... Oh, fuck! You know, I think it's meant to be fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the point I'm trying to make. With Scream... 
I mean, you, you can't dispute that the first 20 minutes, the first 15 minutes of Scream with Drew Barrymore is probably one of the most scariest moments in horror mm. at that time. That scared a young generation. It created new horror fans. And I don't think Scream set out to be as fun as it was. I think it, it was the intention of it was to make uh, a serious horror, you know, with enough knowledge of the films from the past. But what, obviously, what Urban Legend have done is when that set out just to be fun, that was virtually was the Friday 13th following up from Scream. Uh, yes, and I fully agree with you. I mean, the recent ones we've had, you know, I think the Slash drawn in particular, especially the last three or four years, they've lost the essence of what it should be about. I mean, all we've got at the moment now is a serious tone, and it doesn't quite land with the fans. Hence the reason why a film like Hatchet has become a fan favourite. And yet mm. the Jason remake sunk at the box office because they're trying to make it a proper horror film. You know, and he misses the essence of what makes Slashers popular. And I think it's why I feel Urban Legend is such an important addition, you know, to Slash, because it carries the same formula of middle 80s and early night, uh, middle 80s slasher films. It is so daft, but it is so enjoyable. Yeah, and it's, it's riding that crest of a wave, isn't it, that Scream made. And it's different enough for it not to be called a rip-off of Scream. I mean, you've got your titular three miles right there, haven't you? Um, you know, it makes it different enough and fun enough to stand on its own. Loads and loads of slashes you can watch that, oh, it's just a rip-off of this and that and that. There's just no... Well, it's, some of them just seem like there's no effort put in them whatsoever. Whereas this one does feel like that effort has been made to make it that little bit more self-aware to have it stand out and you know although i wouldn't say it's amazing by any standards these days it's it's a decent enough concept to have it you know seem like it stands shoulder to shoulder with those other films the the biggest praise i can give over legend is i mean when scream was such a huge success there were so many films that jumped on the bandwagon i mean we had the i'm going to top my head here now uh the pool starring james mcavoy which i don't think anyone has seen but it's probably one of the most underrated (laughs) slasher films coming from the 90s but by, 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 by the time you got to the horrid Christopher Plummer's The Clown at Midnight you know the genre oh fuck yes yeah. yeah that's a memory in it you know in between now we had a Kylie, <laughs> in between now we had a Kylie Minogue slasher called Cut in which she played the Joe Bymore part which was actually pretty decent but The Clown at Midnight was one of the worst slash films of all time and by the time we came to that you know this it was already exhausted. We had so many people jumping on the tail end of the success of Scream. But the biggest compliment I can give Urban Legend is out of all the films I've released doing that small little period, I would put that in the top three. You know, A Client Midnight had an unusually good cast because you had Margot Kidder was in Yes. That. And Christopher Plummer. Like, <laughs> how the fuck did they end up in this? Oh, God. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible film. Absolutely awful. I, I, I'm guessing Jim's going to seek that out now and he'll probably give it four stars by next week. <laughs> Another quick thing I want to say about the content of this, because it's another note that I probably should have said earlier, right? I'll tell you something this film's got in common with Jurassic Park. What has in common with Jurassic Park is in both situations, there's a need for security, and yet both of them have one security guard. (laughs) If you have dinosaurs, you need more than one game hunter, right? If you have a killer on campus, and you basically know this, then that's when you invest in more security, even if it's just so there's less of a likelihood of you having to cover up another murder. 
my last bit of Nopia is, I, and this is one why I love the film so much, is the final scene, right? Now we have the battle run and the three survivors knowing that they have survived the onslaught, but one of them is shot and probably bleeding to death. So any normal film would have seen the three wait for the police to turn up and then mm. the credits roll. But no, just after the killer is dead, because the only two of the survivors driving in the car, which only mean that these two selfish <laughs> bastards have fled the scene and left the other friend to die on the floor. <laughs> he, actually, he actually says, Giordetto, yes, the police is on its way. <laughs> well, so he just left it dying on the floor. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh... Well, at least they believed him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, so you could have thought earlier. Um, something else I want to add to here. Oh. I like the film points out that guns have no place in slasher films while simultaneously using a gun. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, she's like, yeah, it'd be a bit inelegant to shoot you, but, you know, you work with what you got. I was like, I want to see this kidney being taken out. And, you know, this is one of those movies like Orphan where I just wanted the baddie to win. When she comes back at the end, because I understand actually she does win off screen. I believe that in the second film, they mention that she killed the other survivors off. So she does uh, win. But uh, yeah, the bit of where she's at the end telling the story, we're, we're referencing another yeah. urban legend, of course. She's got the, the uh, blue ribbon around her neck, which is referencing another story where you've got the girl who, if she takes a ribbon off, her head falls off. So. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Never noticed that. It brings me to uh, what sort of urban legends did you guys grow up on? What kind of ghost stories did you have? I Jim? don't think that there was really anything where I was from that wasn't basically just a nasty rumour about someone else. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think I've heard of the one where you drink popping candy and coke at the same time or whatever, then your stomach will explode. But um, nothing else, really. I think maybe some of our pals maybe my cousins tried to come up with a couple of creepy stories to scare the shit out of me when I was a kid failing tremendously but yeah um, there wasn't really any local myths or lore that <laughs> yeah that just didn't turn out to be nasty little rumours about someone so, uh, unfortunately where I grew up wasn't that fun I obviously the Joshua Jackson killing in Urban Legend that happened in where I live you know, many years ago, we heard that story. We had a woman's car broke down and she found that she walked off. And her boyfriend walked off to get petrol and all of a sudden she had scratched at the top, which, of course, is absolutely nonsense. Uh, we also had the story of the blind man and his dog. Have you heard that one? No, what's this one? Uh, this blind man, he's, every night, he obviously can't see. I'm just going by what the story, that's how the fable goes. And every night he puts his hand out and his dog licks him to make sure. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We had a woman for this one. See, yeah. There you go, yes. And then he wakes up and he says humans lick hands as well and his dog's head is in the bowl or something. That was our story. How the yeah. blind man saw that is another, is another thing, you know. <laughs> we had a slightly different variation. It was, uh, right. it was a woman living by herself and she hears this drip, drip, drip coming from the bathroom. She's like, ah, oh, bloody drip, I can't sleep. Anyway, she puts her hand over the side of the bed, dog licks her hand like it does every night. And uh, then the story was that she goes through the bathroom later because the drip keeps on going, opens the door and there's her dog hung. <laughs> Right. Wow. And, and then it says humans can lick too on the wall and blood. Uh, See, it's, that... crazy. it's crazy how different it varies in places. <laughs> but I will challenge the true, true story now. 
this is one. This is the legacy of Urban Legend for me, and this generally did happen to me. And I was about 21, 22, and me and the boys were driving in the night. And where I live, there's a lot of mountains and all that, you know. And we were coming home from a party, and we really seen Urban Legend, and there was this car coming towards us with no flashlights, with no, with no, no lights on. Mm. So I remember my, my mate Alan driving. He was all set to flash, and I said, "No, don't flash." It's a bit like. The Final Destination uh, 2 scene. This is why mm. I will never drive in a truck and now it's got logs, you know, just in case they come <laughs> off. That's why I will never do that anymore. But going back to the urban legend, uh, I said, no, don't flash. And the most scariest, eeriest thing about it is the car slowed down slowly because we didn't flash. <clears throat> and for that brief moment, it was such a... And you couldn't see in it because it was like two o'clock in the morning. It was no, it was no lights anywhere. And yeah, that was quite a freaky. And it slowed down. I've often thought... What were they thinking? Why did he slow down next to us? And what would have happened if we... Yeah, so thanks for that, Jamie Blanks. Thank you. <laughs> Can I tell you a story where me and some friends tried to create an urban legend? Uh, it was one of one of our mates. I'm not going to save her name. This didn't happen to me, however. I was one of the architects of this ruse. We had this area in uh, Edinburgh that we used to walk through, Hermitage of Braid. It, it, it's like a forest bit that goes around Blackford Hill area, right? And it, it gets very, very dark at night. So now we frequently went through like, you know, once, twice a week as teenagers, we just we just sort of go through really late night going <laughs> and telling each other scary stories. You know, it's a, looking back, it's a miracle that uh, no one tried to tried to kill us. But we were fearless back. Prefrontal cortex hadn't yet developed, so we didn't have restraint. Anyway, point is, we wanted to try and put the shits into one of our friends. Let's just call him Greg for this. But the way we went, Greg. Recently, someone went missing there. Someone went missing in the Hermitage, right? So we're just going to go and check out the area. He's like, oh, really, really? Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, no one knows what happened. He got stoned, you know, he went off the track, left his mates, and then no one ever heard from him again. The police have been there all week, right? He, he's, he's buying this. He's totally buying the story. When we go into the Hermitage, you know, we're going, oh, yeah, yeah, it was just a bit further up. Oh, no police state. That's surprising. I wonder why not. You know, keep on going. We reach a point where we say that, he was last seen. We had to cross over a bridge. There's a little island and another bridge. So you cross over that bridge. We're like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, this is all, this was the place, the place he was last seen. And this really scares our mate, right? Go on about 20 seconds. And then suddenly, of this night, of all nights, the only time we encounter someone else, a torchlight shines upon us. Oh. As we're walking <laughs> and we're like, fuck. Right? So we quickly start running, right? And uh, by this point, Greg's obviously thinking that, like, oh, shit, you know, the guy's trying to kill uh, the other dude, right? And we're saying we're thinking ourselves, fuck, this is the one night this shouldn't have happened. We start running, another torch comes on from the other side and then starts coming towards us rapidly, right? So we just sprint our way through these dark woods, come out absolutely caked in mud on the other side with a very long journey home because we hadn't taken the usual exit and uh, scared shitless. So that backfired. Well, that's a story to tell. <laughs> yeah, never wow. try and start your own urban legend in case you become the subject of your own urban legend. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, guys, have you seen the urban legend sequels only briefly? Have you watched them at all? Uh, no. no. Well, <laughs> urban legend 2, you know, by the time the sequel came out two years later, 
the revival of Slash was coming to an end. I think Scream 3 came out the same year, and even that was met with a lukewarm reception. I, by, I think by that time, you were heading towards a new era of horror. You know, you had John Kramer was polishing his tools and getting ready mm. to play a game. Uh, you had Josh Paxton and Ollie were heading off to Hostel for a holiday they'll never forget. I will say mm. Urban Legend 2 is directed by an Oscar winner in John Ottman and uh, Scott Derrickson on co-writing duties. So there's some serious talent being the camera, and you also have Eva Mendes in the cast. Uh, only Loretta Devane, you know, who the security guard is the Kaiora character from the first film, apart from a real, real good cameo at the end. But uh, it's put in power is the fact that if you've watched Urban Legend, then you will need to see Urban Legend too. You know, yeah, it's, 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 by the time it arrived, yeah, as, as you say, everything had just kind of peaked and. By that point, no one was interested. It's it's, yeah, it's strange. I mean, if Scream 3 failed that year with the self-represents, which was basically happening on a film set, what chances are the more Urban Legend had when it was set in a film school? The killer, as I said, the killer walks around with me and the head. And I think because <laughs> slasher films live and die, if you don't want to guess who's behind the mask, then a slasher film lives and die behind the reveal. If you've got to tell the reveal, then you're instantly going to forget the film. You know, for instance, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. You know, that is a really good slash film, which even if you thought it was only a two-star film, once you get that shocking finale, you're already acting, you're already adding two stars to it. So yeah, Urban mm. Legend 2 is let down by the mask is off moment. But I will say it done, it done well at the box office, not as well as the original, but it is a much better film than Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> that doesn't take a lot. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's a <laughs> The other one was uh, Body Mary, I believe, right? Y- yes, it was directed by Mary Lambert, which of course done Pet Cemetery films. Oh shit! I did not know yes. she made it. Yes, and yeah, if it lost the Urban Legend title, then it would be a, a forgettable movie. But I can imagine Jim giving it probably giving it four stars. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're watching the third Urban Legend film, then expecting a person in a park killing people. Instead, much like you know the original. Jumped on the screen by Rangan. This came out when the likes of The Ring and The Grudge, you know, American remakes were doing well at the box office. So the franchise jumped on those tales. You know, they said around, uh, we had a ghost instead, you know, killing people. Uh, I can't remember much about it because I've only ever seen it once, but I, I know it was miles better than the third. I always know what you did last summer, which was beyond awful. Did you guys grow up with the Body Mary myth? Because that was another one. You know, we used to, uh, like, very late night, this would be in the mid-teens, we kind of dare each other to uh, to do it. You know, say Body Mary 5. The, our version was five times in front of a mirror, eventually come up behind you for who can kill you. So basically the Candyman story. Now, I think by the time I was old enough to be scared about that sort of thing, Candyman had been out and scared me ten times more than anything my pals could have done. So, <laughs> yeah, just a few minutes of that film was enough to put the shits on me for weeks, I can tell you that. <laughs> I was 11 when Candyman came out, so Bloody Mary was probably a main focus for a while. And we always had that story of one girl doing it, and she went outside the house, pulling away, and now she's in a mental home. <laughs> Which probably means she probably moves somewhere else. But, you know, yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think everyone tried Bloody Mary at one stage. As very that is such a mild version. She pulled, she went outside and pulled her hair. Yeah, know, that's the story. Remember, she she saw with despair upon again. She pulled all her hair. Now she's bald. And she I, I was like, <laughs> if you close your eyes, then Mary will always be there. <laughs> or like, you know, oh, she she cut you open in front of all your friends, right? No, no, she you pull your hair. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I don't mean to say insensitive to people who have compulsive air pooling, but uh, yeah, it's like that wouldn't put the shits into me as a kid, you know. Oh, by the way, you'll pull out your hair if uh, if, you, if you do Buddy Mary five times. I tell you what, like as an adult, now in my mid thirties, I know it's stupid. I know it's irrational, but and I I would say it five times in front of the mirror. But I would still feel a little bit on edge, you know, because that was just one of those stories that we used to tell so often. You know, it was one of those sort of like we used to do sort of Ouija boards and stuff as kids as well, which is always quite self-serving because the guy who did the Ouija board, it would generally come out in his favor on most things. Like he'd ask questions like, which one of us will be most successful in later life? You know, with him. You know, which one of us is a bigger dick and that sort of thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Bloody Mary did stick with me. Bloody Mary, at the time, I was like, oh, oh. And the thing is, a lot of these sort of ghost stories, they work because of the atmosphere where where you you know you tell them. Like, if you tell someone the Bloody Mary story and you're just, like, hanging around the meadow, then one's going to give a shit, right? But... Because it's generally told very late night in, with a mirror in the room, then it usually like it, it adds that extra edge to the whole thing. A film that sums it up perfectly is The Fog, John Carpenter, with the fisherman at the beginning telling that ghost story. What a perfect set then. You know, he tells that story to the bunch of kids, traumatised them, there's no parents around. <laughs> and, you know, that's just, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from. You've you got, you got to have the situation of a new and And if you tell a good story as well, it works. Yeah, that sort of campfire thing is, you know, it's something I think Urban Legend did well, said with the telling the story around the, uh, the, the the very dimly lit coffee room, right? Yeah. And, you know, when Friday the 13th Part 2 does this, where they're doing the story of Jason at the beginning, I mean, it's a bit they cut back to the prelude for all the other films because it's really effectively done. Well, don't forget, and I know we did last summer, the Joshua Jackson death they actually talked about, well, not that death in particular, but they actually talked about Uber Legend in that film I know we did last summer on the beach. And they actually have a t- little brief discussion mm. about Uber Legends. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I suppose the, the Fisherman is still playing towards an urban legend, right? I mean, yes, the yeah. film essentially creates a, a new one. I believe that was based on a novel, which the novelist was not hugely happy with because I don't think it was a slasher. <laughs> Can I just ask, because I'm a slasher fan, you got, you got my interest now, what you said earlier, why do you think... Urban Legends better than I know we did last summer. Uh, for me, it's the sense of humour that it's got about it. I think if I know what right. we did last summer, there's maybe more of a sense that okay, so I know we did last summer just does a couple of things that frustrate me, and I do think it's a good film. Don't get me wrong. I, I would, yeah. And the a box set that's also available from eighty eight films is uh, <laughs> is well is well worth purchasing. It's oh. absolutely full of extras. And I know what we did last summer. Are you on commission? And we don't know. <laughs> and, <laughs> Um, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping this. I'm hoping this sells so that next, so that you know, next yeah. will go all right. Well, what else? What else can we make it make one of? Let's do the Candyman box set. Or something. Oh yes. <laughs> um, I think we find what we did last summer. I didn't think the mystery element of it worked because we know almost immediately that Freddie Prince Jr. isn't the one who's doing it, right? And they try and make you suspect that it is him for most of the film. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, no matter how many times you try and tell me this pretty boy is a murderer, I just don't believe it. Right. And I think the other thing that bothered me about it, I really like the small town uh, fishing uh, village place, but I thought, I thought the characters are a little bit too cool. Mm. You know, we've got like a beauty queen as one of the people in it, right? And I sort of thought like, eh, you know, we, we don't feel like underdogs. 
Mm, no, I'm asking him because I totally agree with you. I, I've always thought I know, I know, I know was it played it too straight for my liking. Mm. That that that's the problem. You know, it, it tried too hard to be different to any other slash. Some of it worked. I mean, when when uh, Jennifer Levy at the end of the boat was running around and the bodies were all there. Yeah, it's a classic cliche of honor. But that's a pretty good set piece. I love the fact they didn't go down the mask route. You know, when it's revealed who it is. You know, more so than the second one, which actually did copy Scream and Urban Legend. When you know the killer revealing, I I still know what he did last summer. But I think what Urban Legend, Urban Legend, as I said before, done perfectly was it it knew it was slasher. It didn't take itself seriously, and it's thoroughly enjoyable. And I say again, I'll watch this more than any of the recent slasher films that have been released. I agree. If it does play it too straight, like with fun aspects missing, you know, Urban Legend isn't like wink, wink. That's a reference or anything. But it does play it like a pitch black comedy. Yes. And that yeah. really appeals to me. I was wondering if Jim hadn't fallen asleep. <laughs> uh, I have nothing to contribute, though. <laughs> so, uh, overall, what are our star ratings for Urban Legend? I'm going to give it a four. I thought it was very good fun, and uh, it was partially nostalgia speaking, but also just I liked the edginess of it I liked the humour of the whole thing I liked the atmosphere of the whole thing I, and I just thought the kills in it were fantastic so I give it a four oh, if, I, if you give me a couple of beers in I would probably give it a five. Ah, oh, what for <laughs> <laughs> the year off I'm going to go down a different route I probably I can't give it a four because it's been I'm such a slash fan I can think of 200, 300 slash films that are better in this film I will give it a three stars because it's pure 90s. You can't get any pure 90s slasher than probably a legend. But what I will say, if they tie your box set with all three films, then you have to give it four stars. Did all the films, because it is a fantastic collection to have. Because like I said, once you have that collection and you watch Urban Legend, you need to watch the second one. And then once the second one ends, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect, you know, it's been like the Halloween and Halloween 2. Once you watch Halloween, you need to watch Halloween 2. The reason I've not done that is because I pre-ordered the box set. I was sitting there going, there you I'm, go. not, I'm not paying any extra money to watch part two when it's and arriving I, anyway. And I hope you enjoy it. You know, you probably will, especially if you watch back-to-back. You can't go wrong with slasher films, can you? Especially, you know, you, I can't see anyone not liking Urban Legend 2 if we did try Urban Legend 1. What about you, Jim? I think... 20 years ago, I would have given it four stars. Uh, it, it was cracking. It did the job for me. It was everything a horror film should have been at the time. As I say, it's, uh, well, as we all mentioned, it's from that era where Scream wowed the world with, you know, this meta horror. But now that I've seen lots and lots of different subgenres, going back to it, especially after all this time, it did feel a bit flat. It's got the look. Uh, I can't disagree on that one Ross it's got that wonderful 90s feel about it which you all know by now that I just love that 90s aesthetic in films but it did have me looking at me watch a couple of times I think uh, I'd say a low three stars where star ratings in a way become quite arbitrary is because something scores higher than something else it doesn't necessarily mean it's better than the other thing that's scoring higher than you know because it's all about well what's it aiming to do and how well does it do that like I would say Midsommar is a three and a half star film I'm not arguing that Urban Legends is a better film than Midsommar because it's all it's, it's not right in terms of the artistry behind how it's made at the same time like you, you judge Urban Legends alongside other slashers, I reckon. You know, you judge Midsommar for what he's trying to do. I mean, I would personally give 
Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I would give five stars. I would also give The Godfather five stars. But and you, you wouldn't compare the two of them because we're so oh, yeah. we're so dissimilar. You know, I mean, for me, it's uh, so I see what you mean about like you know as you become more as one becomes more educated in horror. But uh, I also sort of think that for slashers, it's a very strict criteria for me for what a five star slasher has to do. You know, it's big kills fun characters in a decent setting and if you got that you've got uh, for me a, a very good slasher well I, I totally get where you're coming from I mean you can't really three stars this is not an insult to a legend nothing at all mm. I would give Halloween H2O three stars Oh, see, I, I, would, I, I would probably, I would probably give Halloween H two O four or five. We'll do five. Oh, never give that. Well, I'd see if you give that five, <laughs> then you match that as the original, and there's no way that's better than the original. It's obviously not as good as the original one. I mean, it's for me, it's my second favorite out of them. But again, this is where star ratings, I think, get quite blurred because say you give it four stars, I'm not saying like it's eighty percent as good as the original. It's just as a slasher film. Yeah, I mean, I think actually, with to sound like a Guardian writing snob, which we'll come to in just one moment, actually, is the <laughs> list. It's like a Guardian writing snob. I would say that Halloween is a slasher that also sort of transcends its own subgenre in a way. You know, well, like Halloween, cool. I think, is a great horror film that, it, that I wouldn't necessarily watch for fun, whereas for me, slasher films are also, like, most of the time, I think, I think it's all about how fun they are. I don't think Halloween's a fun film. I mean, my favourite slasher is Friday the 13th Part 4. And the reason being because it combines like genuine moments of horror with just this totally raunchy uh, kind of kids all trying to get laid comedy. And, uh, you know, it, it does with sleeves, but it does with scares. Oh, by the way, that reminds me, one thing that one thing I will flaw this for as well is I think Danielle Harris was wasted in it. Oh, absolutely. I, I was so angry for years with that because I, I, I've always wanted I, I'm so disappointed that she Halloween 5 didn't follow the original plan for the character Jamie Lloyd and when I saw it and I think yes Daniel asked in it and then of course what happened to the character but then I've gone over it over the years because she started in many horror since and mm. she actually had her own slasher film The Legend of Mary Hatchet which she's centre of that you know she's centre of that film and that to me is what Halloween 5 may have looked like so I can get over the fact now that Danielle Harris is only in it for like 10 minutes. And she does get a sex scene and she does look lovely as well. <laughs> Did you know in real life, Danielle Harris and Alicia and Alicia Witt did live together? Oh, never knew that. Mm-hmm. All the things you find out when you're in IMDb. I wonder if they uh, fell out over the dial-up internet. <laughs> I think we all in agreement, though, that Halloween Resurrection is one star. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By, 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 by a straight slasher criteria. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, folks, to finish up, something I hinted out there about um, Snobby Guardian offers. Earlier in this week, the uh, the offer Ellie Hunt, I believe her name is said, or Elle Hunt, didn't hear it said out loud, uh, she went viral when she asked if Alien is a horror film. She suggested it wasn't because horrors can't be set in space. Now, this is part of a uh, continued effort of that particular paper to uh, discredit uh, horror films. I remember when they had the Doctor Sleep review that went viral because the person writing it openly said at the start they didn't enjoy horror films. They had the uh, 
famous article about how Get Out has invented a new genre of elevated horror just so we don't have to say horror films are good you know or like it's, a, it's almost a freakish accident this film that happens to be <laughs> horror is good so therefore it's not horror it's elevated horror and now we have the idea that Alien one of the all time great horror films is actually a science fiction movie so I thought we'd finish off in tribute to uh, to Ellie or L. What's the, name, what's the name again? It's uh, either Ellie Hunt or L Hunt. It's spelled E double L E. It's not M Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, <laughs> good old Porky's reference. So, uh, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. In, in tribute to her, or potentially as an intervention for her, I have looked up <laughs> Screen Rants 10 Best Horror Movies Set in Outer Space. Now, not all of these are particularly good. <laughs> which partially <laughs> proves their point. Um, but right, what do you guys reckon is on this? The 10 best horror films set in space. Right, Critters 4. <laughs> no, Critters 4 is not on there. That, that list is wrong. I demand a recount. <laughs> <laughs> One of them I don't think is a horror film, by the way. Uh, Event Horizon's got to be on it. Yeah, Event Horizon's on it. Yeah, there. that's got it. And Hellraiser 4. Hey, Hellraiser 4 is not on it. Wow. So don't tell me. Alien 1, Alien 2, Alien 3, Alien 4, Alien Resurrection. With the Alien movies, there are two Alien movies on it. I'm sure you can guess which two those are. The best <laughs> ones, Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, what else do we reckon is on here? Come on, Jim. Well... Uh, I guess that rules out Prometheus and Alien Covenant, doesn't nope, it? Nope, not no. on there. Whoa. <laughs> Leprechaun in space? Nope, not on there. Nor is Jason X, which really surprised oh, me. I love, I love Jason X. I don't Jason understand. X has my, it's my favourite kill of a franchise, the liquid nitrogen. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you said that. That is, that is outstanding. As soon as that happened, it's my favourite. And I love this new look as well. It's brilliant. Uh, oh, I don't know. I'm stuck in. Jim, any last guesses where I go through the top ten? Uh, no, I'm drawing a blank. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone thinks of Alien when you think of great space set horror films, though. So. so, number 10, Ghosts of Mars. Oh, God, no, it's an awful film. Sure. Yep. <laughs> John Carpenter with Natasha Henstridge, oh. Ice Cube, and Jason Statham. Uh, it's the, uh, oh, and uh, Pam Greer. So, it's a, it's a somewhat odd, unique action film. Wasn't huge on it. Next up, Galaxy of Terror from 1981. Mm, I haven't seen that for years. I actually genuinely have never seen it. I mean, I know of it, I've never seen it. Number eight. From 1965, it's Planet of the Vampires. Ah. This is a random list, this is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Number seven from... And that one I had, that one I've seen, it was good. And it was alright, yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, it kind of slipped my mind, but... Number seven is... From 1982, Forbidden World. Roger Corman's second attempt at ripping off Alien. Why was uh, that so high up? Epic. Critters falls better than that. <laughs> Number six, Event Horizon. Oh, that's got to be higher, surely. That should have been higher. I think that's a fantastic movie. Oh, The Shining in Space. Number five. Now, I'm not sure I would call this one a horror. Is uh, the 2002 version of uh, Solaris. What? Yeah, uh, Steven Soderbergh's one. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that as being uh, 
it's been a horror film. I, I mean, thought it was an existential drama, isn't it? Okay, so if we're going down that route, number four is Chicken Little. <laughs> <laughs> number four is Pitch Black. Oh, I forgot about that. Ah, yeah, Pitch Black, I thought was brilliant. Brilliant, yes. Uh, very good. Yeah, an horror how more like an action. I mean, yeah. I've been a bit pedantic with my guesses up to this point because a lot of these are set on a different planet as opposed to in space. Mm. So, <laughs> you went deep, Jim. You went deep. Yeah. You went deep, deep, deep. <laughs> you know, Jim, Jim is right. Technically speaking, because it takes place on a planet. Urban Legend is a space horror film. It's a good way of marketing the next one. Um, number three. All right. So the first two are alien films. Number three is by Toby Hooper. Does anyone know what this one is? Oh. Extra Strings of Masca, part 10, Leatherface goes to Mars. Nah, it is was a, it originally... Life Force, is that what Oh, Life Force, yes, yes. that's the one. Life yes. Force. Life Force, originally entitled Space oh. Vampires. Now, <laughs> number two, we've got, we know it's going to be Aliens and Alien, but what order? Well, uh, use, the, use the famous argument, Dennis, you go. I prefer Aliens to Alien, but Alien is the one that wins it. So Aliens is number two, Alien is number one. I won't argue with that. I, I, if I had to pick what to watch, I'd pick Aliens over Alien. But I can totally understand why Aliens probably voted, you know, the best space horror film of all time. Why yeah. do they? Do, why do they do that? You know, what, what, what is the need? What is the need of it? Is it just for attention? Yeah, I, I, I just don't get it. That, that's got to have been the case. I mean, to say that a horror can't be set in space because it's going to be a sci-fi, not a horror, it's ridiculous. That's like saying Back to the Future Part Three can't be a western. Yeah, I mean, I, I reckon there probably was a bit of a trolling exercise going on here because, you know, you say, well, what's Galaxy Quest? Is it sci-fi or a comedy? <laughs> so I think there probably was a bit of a trolling exercise. And and to be fair, I think what actually happened here was the uh, tweet was not supposed to have gone viral, but it did. And so I think she was probably having a bit of fun responding to it because um, she knew it wound some people up. It's short-sighted or quite myopic when you think of the films that we would class as uh, horror films, like all the ones that we just mentioned there. You know, what was that one, one uh, life, the Jake Gyllenhaal one that came out, like, came out a couple uh, of years ago, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, Hellraiser 4 was obviously another one of these. There are a number of horror films that use space as a location because something you get in space is that space, it's the ultimate no way out scenario. You can't run for help in outer space. Apollo 18 was another one, or Pandorum. And if Apollo 18, that was just, as I found footage, really funny, you know, the idea of the, uh, how the fuck the footage was found. <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, also, it's also very much a horror. It's the language of horror, but you're using a sci-fi location for it. But guys, to pick Alien as, you know, to put Alien in that tweet is the most ridiculous thing ever. You, you know, how can you, how can you not be scared of that entire concept, which oh, Ridley no. Scott, which Ridley I mean, Scott came up, came up with? It's oh, yeah. just you know. the chest burst scene alone is enough to qualify that as a horror an, film. It's got such an, icon, it's such an iconic film. You know, you've got one of probably the most best female you know characters ever created in Ripley. And it's just silly nonsense. As you said, it's, it's snobbery towards the horror genre. And it's, it's not fair. I mean, there's a lot of talented people out there. And there's a lot of good films. But it seems some people look down on us and, you know, for being horror fans, which is sad, really. Mm. 
I think with Aliens as well, because uh, some people say that's an action film, but the thing with Aliens is it's not as scary as Alien. However, the Marines in it, they're trying to survive. They never feel like they have the upper hand. You know, it's like, you go, well, they've got guns, but now there's a shitload more aliens than there were in the first movie, because, like, there's more than one. And uh, the guns are going to stop the aliens for a bit, but they're completely outnumbered. You know, their best hope is getting away, and almost none of them do. It's also about an hour until we actually, like, yeah. see an alien. You know, it really builds up suspense, particularly with the extended cut. I remember there was, a, there was a guy I know who described it well, where he said, you have two versions of aliens. You have aliens, and then you have aliens with bits missing, right? And that's your theatrical one. And I think the extended cut of that is in my top ten of all time. Like, no disrespect to Alien, I think it's fantastic too. The best story about Aliens, which is, you know, before he was made, was James Cameron. He was actually working on a Total Recall film. And he done, he, he wrote it all out in there, and he met the producers, and they, he sat them on that table, and... They, he showed them the script and everything, and there was plan of action, and they weren't, they weren't happy with it. And they said, no, they wanted to be like this. So James Carman said, he stood up, and he said, well, you just wasted six months of my life. Is there anything else you got for me before I go? And they casually turned around and said, well, what about Alien? Sequel to Alien. And he said his mind just exploded with ideas there and then. The fact that that film was born from that moment, with no attention mm. of everything, is just crazy. And I think Aliens is probably, oh, arguably, probably the best horror sequel. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely absolutely up there. I, I do remember reading something about his pitch for it as well. Uh, he basically had Alien written on a, a bit of paper or something or board and just wrote an S on the end. Well, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he felt like the absolute dog's bollocks doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good director. We haven't done enough of E for the last couple of years. We still wait there for Avatar 2 for the last, was it 10 years? It's a crazy situation to be in James Cameron. He's, he's so good. I think of a positive note, we got to get ourselves headed. Now, we've been hyping this up for about three weeks now, but we do have the Screen for Geology retrospective coming up next time. Thank you all very much for listening. Thanks again to uh, Jimmy Blanks if you've listened to the rest of the show. Cheers. And uh, for everyone who's been supporting our show so far, thank you very much. Everyone on YouTube, everyone on Dark Discussions, and everyone on Horror Cult Films. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. See ya. News, views, and reviews. Check out horrorcallfilms.co.uk. White Bat Audio.